Preface and Dedication and Disclaimer to Kidnapped. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Kidnapped by Robert Louis Stevenson. Preface to the Biographical Edition. While my husband and Mr. Henley were engaged in writing plays in Bournemouth, they made a number of titles, hoping to use them in the future. Dramatic composition was not what my husband preferred, but the torrent of Mr. Henley's enthusiasm swept him off his feet. However, after several plays had been finished, and his health seriously impaired by his endeavours to keep up with Mr. Henley, playwriting was abandoned forever, and my husband returned to his legitimate vocation. Having added one of the titles, The Hanging Judge, to the list of projected plays now thrown aside, and emboldened by my husband's offer to give me any help needed, I concluded to try and write it myself. As I wanted a trial scene in the Old Bailey, I chose the period of 1700 for my purpose, but being shamefully ignorant of my subject, and my husband confessing to little more knowledge than I possessed, a London bookseller was commissioned to send us everything he could procure bearing on Old Bailey trials. A great package came in response to our order, and very soon we were both absorbed, not so much in the trials, as in following the brilliant career of a Mr. Garrow, who appeared as counsel in many of the cases. We sent for more books, and yet more, still intent on Mr. Garrow, whose subtle cross-examination of witnesses and masterly if sometimes startling, methods of arriving at the truth seem more thrilling to us than any novel. Occasionally other trials than those in the Old Bailey would be included in the package of books we received from London. Among these my husband found and read with avidity The Trial of James Stewart in Ocarn in Durer of Appen for the murder of Colin Campbell of Glenure EFQ factor for His Majesty on the forfeited estate of Ardfield. My husband was always interested in this period of his country's history, and had already the intention of writing a story that should turn on the Appen murder. The tale was to be of a boy, David Balfour, supposed to belong to my husband's own family, who should travel in Scotland as though it were a foreign country, meeting with various adventures and misadventures by the way. From the trial of James Stewart my husband gleaned much valuable material for his novel, the most important being the character of Alan Brick. Aside from having described him as smallish in stature, my husband seems to have taken Alan Breck's personal appearance, even to his clothing, from the book. A letter from James Stewart to Mr. John Macfarlane, introduced as evidence in the trial, says, There is one Alan Stewart, a distant friend of the late Ardeals, who is in the French service, and came over in March last, as he said to some, in order to settle at home, to others, that he was to go soon back, and was, as I hear, the day that the murder was committed, seen not far from the place where it happened, and is not now to be seen, by which it is believed he was the actor. He is a desperate, foolish fellow, and if he is guilty, came to the country for that very purpose. He is a tall, pock-pitted lad, very black hair, and wore a blue coat and metal buttons, an old red vest, 
and breeches of the same color. A second witness testified to having seen him wearing a blue coat with silver buttons, a red waistcoat, black shag breeches, tartan hose, and a feathered hat with a big coat dun-colored, a costume referred to by one of the council as French clothes which were remarkable. There are many incidents given in the trial that point to Allen's fiery spirit and Highland quickness to take offence. One witness declared also that the said Allen Breck threatened that he would challenge Bally Violin and his sons to fight because of his removing the declarant last year from Glendurer. On another page, Duncan Campbell, change-keeper at Annet, aged thirty-five years, married, witness cited, sworn, purged, and examined at Supra Depones, that in the month of April last the deponent met with Alan Breck Stewart, with whom he was not acquainted, and John Stewart, in Ochnachwan, in the house of the walk-miller of Ochofragen, and went on with them to the house. Alan Breck Stewart said that he hated all the name of Campbell, and the deponent said he had no reason for doing so. But Alan said, he had very good reason for it, that thereafter they left that house, and, after drinking a dram at another house, came to the deponent's house, where they went in and drunk some drams, and Alan Breck renewed the former conversation. And the deponent, making the same answer, Alan said that, if the deponent had any respect for his friends, he would tell them, that if they offered to turn out the possessors of Ardheel's estate, he would make black cocks of them before they entered into possession, by which the deponent understood shooting them, it being a common phrase in the country. Sometime after the publication of Kidnapped, we stopped for a short while in the Appen country, where we were surprised and interested to discover that the feeling concerning the murder of Glenure, the Red Fox, also called Colin Roy, was almost as keen as though the tragedy had taken place the day before. For several years my husband received letters of expostulation or commendation from members of the Campbell and Stuart clans. I have in my possession a paper, yellow with age, that was sent soon after the novel appeared, containing The Pedigree of the Family of Appine, wherein it is said that Alan, third baron of Appine, was not killed at Flodone, though there, but lived to a great old age. He married Cameron daughter to Ewan Cameron of Lochiel. Following this is a paragraph stating that John Stuart I of Ardsheel, of his descendants Alan Breck, had better be omitted. Duncan Bain Stuart in Achenderach, his father, was a bastard. One day, while my husband was busily at work, I sat beside him reading an old cookery book called The Complete Housewife, an accomplished gentlewoman's companion. In the midst of receipts for rabbits and chickens mumbled, pickled samphire, skirt pie, baked tansy, and other forgotten delicacies, there were directions for the preparation of several lotions for the preservation of beauty. One of these was so charming that I interrupted my husband to read it aloud. "'Just what I wanted!' he exclaimed, and the receipt for the Lily of the Valley Water was instantly incorporated into Kidnapped. Signed, F. V. D. E. G. S. Dedication My dear Charles Baxter, 
If you ever read this tale, you will likely ask yourself more questions than I should care to answer, as, for instance, how the Appen murder has come to fall in the year 1751, how the Torren rocks have crept so near to Erhaid, or why the printed trial is silent as to all that touches David Balfour. These are nuts beyond my ability to crack. But if you tried me on the point of Alan's guilt or innocence, I think I could defend the reading of the text. To this day you will find the tradition of Appen clear in Alan's favour. If you inquire, you may even hear that the descendants of the other man who fired the shot are in the country to this day. But that other man's name, inquire as you please, you shall not hear. For the Highlander values a secret for itself, and for the congenial exercise of keeping it, I might go on for long to justify one point and own another indefensible. It is more honest to confess at once how little I am touched by the desire of accuracy. This is no furniture for the scholar's library, but a book for the winter evening schoolroom when the tasks are over and the hour for bed draws near. And honest Alan, who was a grim old fire-eater in his day, has in this new avatar no more desperate purpose than to steal some young gentleman's attention from his Ovid, carry him a while into the highlands and the last century, and pack him to bed with some engaging images to mingle with his dreams. As for you, my dear Charles, I do not even ask you to like this tale, but perhaps when he is older your son will. He may then be pleased to find his father's name on the fly-leaf, and in the meanwhile it pleases me to set it there in memory of many days that were happy, and some, now perhaps as pleasant to remember, that were sad. It is strange for me to look back from a distance both in time and space on these bygone adventures of our youth. It must be stranger for you who tread the same streets, who may to-morrow open the door of the old speculative, where we began to rank with Scott and Robert Emmett and the beloved and inglorious Macbean or may pass the corner of the close where that great society, the L.J.R., held its meetings and drank its beer, sitting in the seats of Burns and his companions. I think I see you, moving there by plain daylight, beholding with your natural eyes those places that have now become for your companion a part of the scenery of dreams. How, in the interval of present business, the past must echo in your memory. Let it not echo often without some kind thoughts of your friend, Robert Louis Stevenson, signed in Scarybore, Bournemouth. And now a disclaimer. Your reader is an American. I'm sorry. I will do my absolute level best to pronounce the Scots words accurately and the names as well, but I cannot promise that they are accurate. Neither can I pretend to a Highland or a Lowland Scots accent. I will make some kind of an attempt, but please bear with me when I fall short. Thank you, and good listening. Chapter 1 of Kidnapped This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Kidnapped by Robert Louis Stevenson. Chapter One 
I set off upon my journey to the house of Shaws. I will begin the story of my adventures with a certain morning early in the month of June, the year of grace, 1751, when I took the key for the last time out of the door of my father's house. The sun began to shine upon the summit of the hills as I went down the road, and by the time I had come as far as the manse, the blackbirds were whistling in the garden lilacs, and the mist that hung around the valley in the time of the dawn was beginning to arise and die away. Mr. Campbell, the minister of Essendine, was waiting for me by the garden gate, good man. He asked me if I had breakfasted, and hearing that I lacked for nothing, he took my hand in both of his and clapped it kindly under his arm. "'Well, Davy lad,' said he, "'I will go with you as far as the ford, to set you on the way,' and we began to walk forward in silence. "'Are you sorry to leave Essendine?' said he, after a while. "'Why, sir,' said I, "'if I knew where I was going, or what was likely to become of me, I would tell you candidly. Essendine is a good place, indeed, and I have been very happy there, but then I have never been anywhere else. My father and mother, since they are both dead, I shall be no nearer to in Essendine than in the kingdom of Hungary, and to speak truth, if I thought I had a chance to better myself where I was going, I would go with a good will." "'Aye,' said Mr. Campbell. "'Very well, Davy. Then it behooves me to tell your fortune, or so far as I may. When your mother was gone, and your father, the worthy Christian man, began to sicken for his end, he gave me in charge a certain letter, which he said was your inheritance. So soon, says he, as I am gone, and house is read up and the gear disposed of, all which Davy hath been done, give my boy this letter into his hand, and start him off to the house of Shaw's, not far from Cremond. That is the place I came from, he said and it's where it befits that my boy should return. He is a steady lad, your father said, and a canny goer, and I doubt not he will come safe and be well liked where he goes. The house of Shaw's! I cried. What had my poor father to do with the house of Shaw's? Nay, said Mr. Campbell, who can tell that for a surety? But the name of that family, Davy boy, is the name you bear, Balfour's of Shaw's an ancient, honest, reputable house, peradventure in these latter days, decayed. Your father, too, was a man of learning as befitted his position. No man more plausibly conducted school, nor had he the manner or the speech of a common domini. But, as ye will yourself remember, I took I a pleasure to have him to the manse to meet the gentry, and those of my own house, Campbell of Kilrennet, Campbell of Dunswire, Campbell of Minch, and others all well-kenned gentlemen, had pleasure in his society. Lastly, to put all the elements of this affair before you, here is the testamentary letter itself, superscribed by the own hand of our departed brother. He gave me the letter, which was addressed in these words, To the hands of Ebenezer Balfour, Esquire, of Shaw's, in his house of Shaw's, these will be delivered by my son, David Balfour. My heart was beating hard at this great prospect, now suddenly opening before a lad of seventeen years of age, the son of a poor country dominie in the forest of Ettrick. "'Mr. Campbell,' I stammered, "'and if you were in my shoes, would you go?' "'Of a surety,' said the minister, 
That would I, and without pause. A pretty lad like you should get to Cremond, which is near in by Edinburgh, in two days of walk. If the worst come to the worst, and your high relations, as I cannot but suppose them to be somewhat of your blood, should put you to the door, you can but walk the two days back again and risp at the man's door. But I would rather hope that ye should be well received, as your poor father forecast for you, and for anything that I can, come to be a great man in time. And here, Davy Laddie, he resumed, it lies near upon my conscience to improve this parting, and set you on the right guard against the dangers of the world. Here he cast about for a comfortable seat, lighted on a big boulder under a birch by the trackside, sat down upon it with a very long, serious upper lip, and, the sun now shining in upon us between two peaks, put his pocket-handkerchief over his cocked hat to shelter him. There, then, with uplifted forefinger, he first put me on my guard against a considerable number of heresies, to which I had no temptation, and urged upon me to be instant in my prayers and reading of the Bible. That done, he drew a picture of the great house that I was bound to, and how I should conduct myself with its inhabitants. "'Be soople, Davy, in things immaterial,' said he. "'Bear ye this in mind, that though gentle-born, you have a country rearing. Dinna shame us, Davy, dinna shame us. In yon great muckle house, with all these domestics, upper and under, show yourself as nice, as circumspect, as quick at the conception, and as slow of speech as any. As for the laird, remember he's the laird. I say no more. Honour to whom honour. It's a pleasure to obey a laird, or should be, to the young. "'Well, sir,' said I, "'it may be, and I'll promise you I'll try to make it so.' "'Why, very well said,' replied Mr. Campbell heartily. "'And now to come to the material, or to make a quibble, to the immaterial. I have here a little packet which contains four things.' He tugged it as he spoke, and with some great difficulty from the skirt-pocket of his coat. "'Of these four things the first is your legal due.' the little pickle-money for your father's books and plenishing, which I have bought, as I explained from the first, in the design of reselling at a profit to the incoming domini. The other three are gifties that Mrs. Campbell and myself would be blithe of your acceptance. The first, which is round, will likely please you best at the first off-go. But, oh, Davy, laddie, it's but a drop of water in the sea. It'll help you but a step, and vanish like the morning. The second, which is flat and square, and written upon, will stand by you through life, like a good staff for the road, and a good pillow to your head in sickness. And as for the last, which is cubical, that'll see you, it's my prayerful wish, into a better land." With that he got upon his feet, took off his hat, and prayed a little while aloud, and in affecting terms, for a young man setting out into the world, then suddenly took me in his arms and embraced me very hard then held me at arm's length, looking at me with his face all working with sorrow, and then whipped about, and crying good-bye to me, set off backward by the way that we had come at a sort of jogging run. It might have been laughable to another, but I was in no mind to laugh. I watched him as long as he was in sight, and he never stopped hurrying, nor once looked back. Then it came in upon my mind that this was all his sorrow at my departure 
and my conscience smote me hard and fast, because I, for my part, was overjoyed to get out of that quiet countryside and go to a great busy house among rich and respected gentlefolk of my own name and blood. Davy, Davy, I thought, was ever seen such black ingratitude? Can you forget old favours and old friends at the mere whistle of a name? Fie, fie, think shame! And I sat down on the boulder the good man had just left, and opened the parcel to see the nature of my gifts. That which he had called cubicle I had never had much doubt of. Sure enough it was a little Bible, to carry in a plaid nook. That which he had called round I found to be a shilling-piece, and the third, which was to help me so wonderfully both in health and sickness all the days of my life, was a little piece of coarse yellow paper, written upon thus in red ink. To make Lily of the Valley water. Take the flowers of Lily of the Valley, and distill them in sack, and drink a spoonful or two as there is occasion. It restores speech to those that have the dumb palsy. It is good against the gout. It comforts the heart and strengthens the memory. And the flowers put into a glass, close stopped, and set into a hill of ants for a month, then take it out, and you will find a liquor which comes from the flowers, which keep in a vial. It is good, ill or well, and whether man or woman. And then in the minister's own hand was added, Likewise for sprains, rub it in, and for the colic, a great spoonful in the hour. To be sure, I laughed over this, but it was rather tremulous laughter, and I was glad to get my bundle on my staff's end and set out over the ford and up the hill upon the farther side, till, just as I came on the green drove-road running wide through the heather, I took my last look of Kirk Essendine, the trees about the manse, and the big rowans in the kirkyard where my father and my mother lay. End of chapter Chapter 2 of Kidnapped This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Kidnapped by Robert Louis Stevenson. Chapter 2 I Come to My Journey's End. On the forenoon of the second day, coming to the top of a hill, I saw all the country fall away before me down to the sea, and in the midst of this descent, on a long ridge, the city of Edinburgh smoking like a kiln. There was a flag upon the castle, and ships moving or lying anchored in the firth, both of which, for as far away as they were, I could distinguish clearly, and both brought my country heart into my mouth. Presently after I came by a house where a shepherd lived, and got a rough direction for the neighbourhood of Cremond, and so, from one to another, worked my way to the westward of the capital by Collington, till I came out upon the Glasgow Road and there to my great pleasure and wonder I beheld a regiment marching to the fifes, every foot in time, an old red-faced general on a grey horse at the one end, and at the other the company of grenadiers with their pope's hats. The pride of life seemed to mount into my brain at the sight of the red coats and the hearing of that merry music. 
a little further on, and I was told I was in Cremond Parish, and began to substitute in my inquiries the name of the house of Shaw's. It was a word that seemed to surprise those of whom I sought my way. At first I thought the plainness of my appearance, in my country habit, and that all dusty from the road, consorted ill with the greatness of the place to which I was bound. But after two or maybe three had given me the same look and the same answer, I began to take it in my head that there was something strange about the Shaw's itself. The better to set this fear at rest, I changed the form of my inquiries, and spying an honest fellow coming along a lane on the shaft of his cart, I asked him if he had ever heard tell of a house they called the House of Shaw's. He stopped his cart and looked at me like the others. "'Aye,' said he, "'what for?' "'It's a great house?' I asked. "'Doubtless,' says he, "'the house is a big muckle-house.' "'Aye,' said I, "'but the folk that are in it?' "'Folk!' cried he. "'Are ye daft? Then they folks there to call folk?' "'What?' say I. "'Not Mr. Ebenezer?' "'Oh, aye,' says the man. "'There's the laird, to be sure, if it's him you're wanting. What'll like be your business, Manny?' "'I was led to think that I would get a situation,' I said, looking as modest as I could. "'What?' cries the carter, in so sharp a note that his very horse started, and then— "'Well, Manny,' he added, "'it's none of my affairs, but you seem a decent-spoken lad.' and if you'll take a word from me you'll keep clear of the Shaws." The next person I came across was a dapper little man in a beautiful white wig, whom I saw to be a barber on his rounds, and knowing well that barbers were great gossips, I asked him plainly what sort of a man was Mr. Balfour of the Shaws. "'Hoot, hoot, hoot,' said the barber. "'Nat kind of a man, nat kind of a man at all,' and began to ask me very shrewdly what my business was but I was more than a match for him at that, and he went on to his next customer no wiser than he came. I cannot well describe the blow this dealt to my illusions. The more indistinct the accusations were, the less I liked them, for they left the wider field to fancy. What kind of a great house was this, that all the parish should start and stare to be asked the way to it? Or what sort of a gentleman, that his ill-fame should be thus current on the wayside? If an hour's walking would have brought me back to Essendean, I would have left my adventure then and there, and returned to Mr. Campbell's. But when I had come so far away already, mere shame would not suffer me to desist till I had put the matter to the touch of proof. I was bound, out of mere self-respect, to carry it through, and little as I liked the sound of what I heard, and slow as I began to travel, I still kept asking my way, and still kept advancing. I was drawing on to sundown when I met a stout, dark, sour-looking woman coming trudging down a hill, and she, when I had put my usual question, turned sharp about, accompanied me back to the summit she had just left, and pointed to a great bulk of building standing very bare upon a green in the bottom of the next valley. The country was pleasant round about, running in low hills, pleasantly watered and wooded, and the crops to my eyes wonderfully good but the house itself seemed to be a kind of ruin. No road led up to it, no smoke arose from any of the chimneys, nor was there any semblance of a garden. My heart sank. 
That! I cried. The woman's face lit up with a malignant anger. That is the house of Shaw's, she cried. Blood built it, blood stopped the building of it, blood shall bring it down. See here, she cried again. I spit upon the ground, and crack my thumb at it. Black be its fall. If you see the laird, tell him what you hear. Tell him this makes the twelve hundred and nineteen time that Jeddak Clouston has called down the curse on him and his house. Buyer and stable, man, guest and master, wife, miss, or bairn. Black, black be their fall. And the woman, whose voice had ridden to a kind of eldritch sing-song, turned with a skip and was gone. I stood where she left me, with my hair on end. In those days folks still believed in witches, and trembled at a curse, and this one, falling so pat, like a wayside omen, to arrest me ere I carried out my purpose, took the pith out of my legs. I sat me down and stared at the house of Shaw's. The more I looked, the pleasanter that countryside appeared, being all set with hawthorn bushes full of flowers, the fields dotted with sheep a fine flight of rooks in the sky, and every sign of a kind soil and climate, and yet the barrack in the midst of it went sore against my fancy. Country folk went by from the fields as I sat there on the side of the ditch, but I lacked the spirit to give them a good aim. At last the sun went down, and then, right up against the yellow sky, I saw a scroll of smoke go mounting, not much thicker, as it seemed to me, than the smoke of a candle but still there it was, and meant a fire, and warmth, and cookery, and some living inhabitant that must have lit it, and this comforted my heart. So I set forward by a little faint track in the grass that led in my direction. It was very faint indeed, to be the only way to a place of habitation, yet I saw no other. Presently it brought me to stone uprights, with an unroofed lodge beside them, and coats of arms upon the top. A main entrance it was plainly meant to be, but never finished. Instead of gates of wrought iron, a pair of hurdles were tied across with a straw rope, and as there were no park walls, nor any sign of avenue, the track that I was following passed on the right hand of the pillars, and went wandering on toward the house. The nearer I got to that, the drearier it appeared. It seemed like the one wing of a house that had never been finished. What should have been the inner end stood open on the upper floors, and showed against the sky with steps and stairs of uncompleted masonry. Many of the windows were unglazed, and bats flew in and out like doves out of a dovecoat. The night had begun to fall as I got close, and in three of the lower windows, which were very high up and narrow, and well barred, the changing light of a little fire began to glimmer. Was this the palace I had been coming to? Was it within these walls that I was to seek new friends and begin great fortunes? Why, in my father's house on Essen Waterside, the fire and the bright lights would show a mile away, and the door open to a beggar's knock? I came forward cautiously, and giving ear as I came, heard someone rattling with dishes, a little dry, eager cough that came in fits, but there was no sound of speech, and not a dog barked. The door, as well as I could see it in the dim light, was a great piece of wood all studded with nails, and I lifted my hand with a faint heart under my jacket, and knocked once. Then I stood and waited. The house had fallen into a dead silence. A whole minute passed away, 
and nothing stirred but the bats overhead. I knocked again and hearkened again. By this time my ears had grown so accustomed to the quiet that I could hear the ticking of the clock inside as it slowly counted out the seconds, but whoever was in that house kept deadly still, and must have held his breath. I was in two minds whether to run away, but anger got the upper hand, and I began instead to rain kicks and buffets on the door, and to shout aloud for Mr. Balfour. I was in full career, when I heard the cough right overhead, and jumping back and looking up, beheld a man's head in a tall nightcap, and the bell-mouth of a blunderbuss at one of the first-story windows. "'It's loaded,' said a voice. "'I have come here with a letter,' I said. "'To Mr. Ebenezer Balfour of Shaw's. Is he here?' "'From whom is it?' asked the man with the blunderbuss. "'That is neither here nor there,' said I, for I was growing very wroth. "'Well,' was the reply, "'ye can put it down upon the doorstep and be off with ye.' "'I will do no such thing,' I cried. "'I will deliver it into Mr. Balfour's hands, as it was meant I should. It is a letter of introduction.' "'A what?' cried the voice, sharply. I repeated what I had said. "'Who are ye yourself?' was the next question, after a considerable pause. "'I'm not ashamed of my name,' said I. They call me David Balfour. At that I made sure the man started, for I heard the blunderbuss rattle on the window-sill, and it was after quite a long pause, and with a curious change of voice, that the next question followed. "'Is your father dead?' I was so much surprised at this, that I could find no voice to answer, but stood staring. "'Aye,' the man resumed. He'll be dead, no doubt, and that'll be what brings you chappin' to my door." Another pause, and then defiantly, "'Well, man,' he said, "'I'll let you in.' And he disappeared from the window. End of chapter Chapter 3 of Kidnapped this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Kidnapped by Robert Louis Stevenson. Chapter 3 I Make Acquaintance of My Uncle. Presently there came a great rattling of chains and bolts, and the door was cautiously opened and shut to again behind me as soon as I had passed. "'Go into the kitchen and touch nothing,' said the voice, and while the person of the house set himself to replacing the defences of the door, I groped my way forward and entered the kitchen. The fire had burned up fairly bright, and showed me the barest room I think I ever put my eyes on. Half a dozen dishes stood upon the shelves. The table was laid for supper with a bowl of porridge, a horn spoon, and a cup of small beer. Besides what I have named, there was not another thing in that great stone-vaulted empty chamber but lock-fast chests arranged along the wall, and a corner covered with a padlock. As soon as the last chain was up, the man rejoined me. He was a mean, stooping, narrow-shouldered, clay-faced creature, 
and his age might have been anything between fifty and seventy. His nightcap was of flannel, and so was the nightgown that he wore, instead of coat and waistcoat over his ragged shirt. He was long unshaved, but what most distressed and even daunted me, he would neither take his eyes away from me nor look me fairly in the face. What he was, whether by trade or birth, was more than I could fathom, but he seemed most like an old, unprofitable serving-man, who should have been left in charge of that big house upon board wages. "'Are you sharp-set?' he asked, glancing at about the level of my knee. "'You can eat that drop perritch. I said I feared it was his own supper. "'Oh,' said he, "'I can do fine wanting it. I'll take the ale, though, for it slockens my cough.' He drank the cup about half out, still keeping an eye upon me as he drank, and then suddenly held out his hand. "'Let's see the letter,' said he. I told him the letter was for Mr. Balfour, not for him. "'And who do you think I am?' says he. "'Give me Alexander's letter.' "'You know my father's name?' "'It would be strange if I didn't,' he returned, "'for he was my born brother.' and little as you seem to like either me or my house or my good parish, I'm your born uncle, Davy, my man, and you my born nephew. So give us the letter and sit down and fill your kite. If I had been some years younger, what with shame, weariness, and disappointment, I believe I had burst into tears. As it was, I could find no words, neither black nor white, but handed him the letter, and sat down to the porridge with as little appetite for meat as ever a young man had. Meanwhile my uncle, stooping over the fire, turned the letter over and over in his hands. "'Do you ken what's in it?' he asked suddenly. "'You see for yourself, sir,' said I, "'that the seal has not been broken.' "'Aye,' said he, "'but what brought you here?' "'To give the letter,' said I. No, says he, cunningly, but you'll have some hopes, no doubt. I confess, sir, said I, when I was told that I had kinsfolk well to do, I did indeed indulge the hope that they might help me in my life. But I am no beggar. I look for no favours at your hands, and I want none that are not freely given. For as poor as I appear, I have friends of my own that will be blithe to help me. Hoot, hoot, said Uncle Ebenezer. Didn't I fly up in the snuff at me? We'll agree fine yet. And Davy, my man, if you're done with that bit of parritch, I could just take a sup of it myself. Aye, he continued, as soon as he had ousted me from the stool and spoon, they're fine, hailsome food. They're grand food, parritch. He murmured a little grace to himself and fell to. Your father was very fond of his meat, I mind. He was a hearty, if not a great eater. But as for me, I could never do more in pike at food. He took a pull at the small beer, which probably reminded him of hospitable duties, for his next speech ran thus. If you're dry, you'll find water behind the door. To this I returned no answer, standing stiffly on my two feet, and looking down upon my uncle with a mighty angry heart. He, on his part, 
continued to eat like a man under some pressure of time, and to throw out little darting glances now at my shoes and now at my homespun stockings. Once only, when he had ventured to look a little higher, our eyes met, and no thief taken with a hand in a man's pocket could have shown more lively signals of distress. This set me in a muse, whether his timidity arose from too long a disuse of any human company, or whether perhaps, upon a little trial, it might pass off, and my uncle change into an altogether different man. From this I was awakened by his sharp voice. "'Your father's been long dead?' he asked. Three weeks, sir,' said I. "'He was a secret man, Alexander, a secret silent man,' he continued. "'He never said muckle when he was young. He never have spoken muckle of me. I never knew, sir, till you told it me yourself, that he had any brother.' "'Dear me, dear me,' said Ebenezer. "'Nor yet of Shaw's, I dare say.' "'Not so much as the name, sir,' said I. "'To think of that,' said he, "'a strange nature of a man.' For all that he seemed singularly satisfied, but whether with himself, or me, or with this conduct of my father's, was more than I could read. Certainly, however, he seemed to be outgrowing that distaste or ill-will that he had conceived at first against my person, for presently he jumped up, came across the room behind me, and hit me a smack upon the shoulder. "'We'll agree fine yet,' he cried. "'I'm just as glad I let you in. And now come away to your bed.' To my surprise he lit no lamp or candle, but set forth into the dark passage, groped his way, breathing deeply, up a flight of steps, and paused before a door, which he unlocked. I was close upon his heels, having stumbled after him as best I might, and then he bade me go in, for that was my chamber. I did as he bid, but paused after a few steps, and begged a light to go to bed with. "'Hoot, toot!' said Uncle Ebenezer. "'There's a fine moon!' "'Neither moon nor star, sir, and pit murk,' said I. "'I cannot see the bed.' "'Hoot, toot, hoot, toot!' said he. "'Lights in a house is a thing I dinna agree with. I'm unco afeard of fires. Good night to you, Davy, my man.' And before I had time to add a further protest, he pulled the door to, and I heard him lock me in from the outside. I did not know whether to laugh or cry. The room was as cold as a well, and the bed, when I had found my way to it, as damp as a peat-hag, but... By good fortune I had caught up my bundle and my plaid, and, rolling myself on the ladder, I lay down upon the floor under lee of the big bedstead, and fell speedily asleep. With the first peep of day I opened my eyes, to find myself in a great chamber, hung with stamped leather, furnished with fine embroidered furniture, and lit by three fair windows. Ten years ago, or perhaps twenty, it must have been as pleasant a room to lie down or to awake in as a man could wish. But damp, dirt, disuse, and the mice and spiders had done their worst since then. Many of the window-panes besides were broken, and indeed this was so common a feature in that house that I believe my uncle must at some time have stood a siege from his indignant neighbours, perhaps with Jennet Clouston at their head. 
Meanwhile the sun was shining outside, and being very cold in that miserable room, I knocked and shouted till my jailer came and let me out. He carried me to the back of the house, where there was a draw-well, and told me to wash my face there, if I wanted. And when that was done, I made the best of my own way back to the kitchen, where he had lit the fire and was making the porridge. The table was laid with two bowls and two horn-spoons, but the same single measure of small beer. Perhaps my eye rested on this particular with some surprise, and perhaps my uncle observed it for he spoke up as if in answer to my thought, asking me if I would like to drink ale, for so he called it. I told him such was my habit, but not to put himself about. "'Nah, nah,' said he, "'I'll deny you nothing in reason.' He fetched another cup from the shelf, and then to my great surprise, instead of drawing more beer, he poured an acrid half from one cup to the other. There was a kind of nobleness in this that took my breath away. If my uncle was certainly a miser, he was one of that thorough breed that goes near to make the vice respectable. When we had made an end of our meal, my uncle Ebenezer unlocked a drawer, and drew out of it a clay pipe and a lump of tobacco, from which he cut one fill before he locked it up again. Then he sat down in the sun at one of the windows, and silently smoked. From time to time his eyes came coasting round to me, and he shot me out one of his questions. Once it was, "'And your mother?' And when I had told him that she too was dead, "'Ay, she was a bonny lassie.' Then, after another long pause, "'Where were these friends of yours?' I told him they were different gentlemen of the name of Campbell, though, indeed, there was only one, and that the minister that had ever taken the least note of me, but I began to think my uncle made too light of my position, and finding myself all alone with him, I did not wish him to suppose me helpless. He seemed to turn this over in his mind, and then, "'Davy, my man,' said he, "'you've come to the right bit when you come to your uncle Ebenezer. I've a great notion of the family, and I mean to do the right by you.' But while I'm taking a bit of think to myself of what's the best thing to put you to, whether the law, or the ministry, or maybe the army, Wilk is what boys are fondest of. I wouldn't like the Balfours to be humbled before a ween Highland Campbells, and I'll ask you to keep your tongue within your teeth. Nay letters, nay messages, no kind of work to anybody, or else there's my door. Uncle Ebenezer, said I. I've no manner of reason to suppose you mean anything but well by me. For all that, I would have you to know that I have a pride of my own. It was by no will of mine that I came seeking you, and if you show me your door again I'll take you at the word." He seemed grievously put out. "'Hoot, hoot!' said he. "'Cacanny, man, cacanny! Bide a day or two. I'm no warlock to find a fortune for you in the bottom of a parrot's bowl, but just you give me a day or two, say nothing to nobody, and I'm as sure as sure I'll do the right by you." "'Very well,' said I. Enough said. But you want to help me, there's no doubt but I'll be glad of it, and none but I'll be grateful." It seemed to me, too soon, I dare say, that I was getting the upper hand of my uncle 
and I began next to say that I must have the bed and bedclothes aired and put to sun-dry, for nothing would make me sleep in such a pickle. "'Is this my house or yours?' said he, in his keen voice, and then all of a sudden broke off. "'Nah, nah,' said he, "'I didna mean that. What's mine is yours, Davy, my man, and what's yours is mine. Blood's thicker than water, and there's nobody but you and me that ought the name.' And then on he rambled about the family, and its ancient greatness, and his father that began to enlarge the house, and himself that stopped the building as a sinful waste, and this put it in my head to give him Janet Clouston's message. "'The limmer!' he cried. "'Twelve hundred and fifteen! That's every day since I had the limmer roped Dod, David, I'll have her roasted on red peats before I'm by with it! A witch!' A proclaimed witch! I'll often see the session clerk." With that he opened a chest, and got out a very old and well-preserved blue coat and waistcoat, and a good enough beaver hat, both without lace. These he threw on anyway, and taking a staff from the cupboard, locked all up again, and was for setting out, when a thought arrested him. "'I cannot leave you by yourself in the house,' said he. "'I have to lock you out.' The blood came to my face. "'If you lock me out,' I said, "'it'll be the last you'll see of me in friendship.' He turned very pale, and sucked his mouth in. "'This is not a way,' he said, looking wickedly at a corner of the floor. "'This is not a way to win my favour, David.' "'Sir,' says I, "'with a proper reverence for your age and our common blood, I do not value your favour at a bottle's purchase. I was brought up to have a good conceit of myself, and if you were all the uncle and all the family I had in the world ten times over, I wouldn't buy your liking at such prices." Uncle Ebenezer went and looked out of the window for a while. I could see him all trembling and twitching like a man with palsy, but when he turned round he had a smile upon his face. "'Well, well,' said he. We must bear and forbear. I'll no go. That's all to be said of it." "'Uncle Ebenezer,' I said, "'I can make nothing out of this. You use me like a thief. You hate to have me in this house. You let me see it every word and every minute. It's not possible that you can like me. And as for me, I've spoken to you as I've never thought to speak to any man. Why do you seek to keep me, then?' Let me gang back, let me gang back to the friends I have, and that like me." "'Na, na, na, na,' he said, very earnestly. "'I like ye fine, we'll agree fine yet, and for the honour of the house I couldna let ye leave the way ye came. Bide here quiet, there's a good lad, just ye bide here quiet a bitty, and you'll find that we agree.' "'Well, sir,' said I, after I'd thought the matter out in silence, "'I'll stay a while. It's more just I should be helped by my own blood than strangers, and if we don't agree, I'll do my best it shall be through no fault of mine. End of chapter Chapter four of Kidnapped This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. 
For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Kidnapped by Robert Louis Stevenson Chapter 4 I Run a Great Danger in the House of Shaw's For a day that was begun so ill, the day passed fairly well. We had the porridge cold again at noon, and hot porridge at night. Porridge and small beer was my uncle's diet. He spoke but little, and that in the same way as before, shooting a question at me, after a long silence, and when I sought to lead him to talk about my future, slipped out of it again. In a room next door to the kitchen, where he suffered me to go, I found a great number of books, both Latin and English, in which I took great pleasure all the afternoon. Indeed, the time passed so lightly in this good company that I began to be almost reconciled to my residence at Shaw's, and nothing but the sight of my uncle, and his eyes playing a hide-and-seek with mine, revived the force of my distrust. One thing I discovered, which put me in some doubt, there was an entry on the fly-leaf of a chapbook, one of Patrick Walker's, plainly written by my father's hand, and thus conceived, to my brother Ebenezer on his fifth birthday. Now what puzzled me was this, that as my father was of course the younger brother, he must either have made some strange error, or he must have written, before he was yet five, an excellent clear manly hand of writing. I tried to get this out of my head, but though I took down many interesting authors, old and new, history, poetry, and story-book, this notion of my father's hand of writing stuck to me, and when at length I went back into the kitchen, and sat down once more to porridge and small beer, the first thing I said to Uncle Ebenezer was to ask him if my father had not been very quick at his book. "'Alexander? No him,' was the reply. "'I was far quicker myself. I was a clever chappy when I was young. Why, I could read as soon as he could.' This puzzled me yet more, and a thought coming into my head, I asked if he and my father had been twins. He jumped upon his stool, and the horn-spoon fell out of his hand upon the floor. "'What gars you ask that?' he said, and he caught me by the breast of the jacket, and looked this time straight into my eyes, his own were little and light, and bright like a bird's, blinking and winking strangely. "'What do you mean?' I asked very calmly, for I was far stronger than he, and not easily frightened. "'Take your hand from my jacket. This is no way to behave.' My uncle seemed to make a great effort upon himself. "'Dad, man, David,' he said, "'you shouldn't have speak to me about your father. That's where the mistake is.' He sat a while and shook, blinking in his plate. "'He was all the brother that ever I had.' he added, with no heart in his voice, and then he caught up his spoon and fell to supper again, but still shaking. Now this last passage, this laying of hands upon my person, and sudden profession of love for my dead father, went so clean beyond my comprehension that it put me into both fear and hope. On the one hand, I began to think my uncle was perhaps insane, and might be dangerous. On the other, there came up into my mind quite unbidden by me and even discouraged, a story like some ballad I had heard folks singing, 
of a poor lad that was a rightful heir, and a wicked kinsman that tried to keep him from his own. But why should my uncle play a part with a relative that came almost a beggar to his door, unless in his heart he had some cause to fear him? With this notion, all unacknowledged, but nevertheless getting firmly settled in my head, I now began to imitate his covert looks, so that we sat at table like a cat and a mouse, each stealthily observing the other. Not another word had he to say to me, black or white, but he was busy turning something secretly over in his mind, and the longer we sat and the more I looked at him, the more certain I became that the something was unfriendly to myself. When he had cleared the platter, he got out a single pipeful of tobacco, just as in the morning, turned round a stool into the chimney-corner, and sat a while smoking with his back to me. "'Davy,' he said, at length, "'I've been thinking,' then he paused, and said it again, "'There's a wee bit siller that I half promised ye before you was born,' he continued, "'promised it to your father.' Oh, nothing legal, you understand, just gentlemen daffin' at their wine. Well, I keep it that bit of money separate. It was a great expense, but a promise he is a promise, and it has grown by now to be a matter of just precisely, just exactly, and here he paused and stumbled, uh, just exactly forty pounds. This last he rapped out with a sidelong glance over his shoulder, and the next moment he added, almost with a scream, SCOTS! The pound Scots being the same thing as an English shilling, the difference made by this second thought was considerable. I could see, besides, that the whole story was a lie, invented with some end which it puzzled me to guess, and I made no attempt to conceal the tone of raillery in which I answered, Oh, think again, sir, pound sterling, I believe. That's what I said, returned my uncle. Pound sterling, and if you'll step out by to the door a minute, just to see what kind of a night it is, I'll get it out to you, and call you in again." I did his will, smiling to myself in my contempt that he should think I was so easily to be deceived. It was a dark night, with a few stars low down, and as I stood just outside the door I heard a hollow moaning of wind far off among the hills. I said to myself there was something thundery and changeful in the weather, and little knew of what a vast importance that should prove to me before the evening passed. When I was called in again my uncle counted out into my hand seven-and-thirty golden guinea pieces. The rest was in his hand in small gold and silver, but his heart failed him there, and he crammed the change into his pocket. "'There,' said he, "'that'll show you.' I'm a queer man, and strange with strangers, but my word is my bond, and there's the proof of it." Now my uncle seemed so miserly that I was struck dumb by this sudden generosity, and could find no words in which to thank him. "'Not a word,' he said. "'No thanks. I want no thanks. I do my duty. I'm no saying that everybody would have done it, but for my part, though I'm a careful body too, it's a pleasure to me to do the right by my brother's son, and it's a pleasure to me to think that now we'll agree, as such near friends should." I spoke him in return as handsomely as I was able, but all the while I was wondering what would come next, and why he had parted with his precious guineas, 
for as to the reason he had given a baby would have refused it. Presently he looked towards me sideways. "'And see here,' said he, "'tit for tat.' I told him I was ready to prove my gratitude in any reasonable degree, and then waited, looking for some monstrous demand. And yet, when at last he plucked up courage to speak, it was only to tell me, very properly as I thought, that he was growing old and a little broken, and that he would expect me to help him with the house and the bit of garden. I answered and expressed my readiness to serve. "'Well,' said he, "'let's begin.' He pulled out of his pocket a rusty key. "'There,' says he, "'there's the key of the stair-tower at the far end of the house. You can only win into it from the outside, for that part of the house is no finished. Gang ye in there, and up the stairs, and bring me down the chest that's at the top. There's papers in it,' he added. "'Can I have a light, sir?' said I. "'Nah,' said he, very cunningly, "'no lights in my house.' "'Very well, sir,' said I. "'Are the stairs good?' "'They're grand,' said he. And then, as I was going, "'Keep to the wall,' he added. "'There's no banisters, but the stairs are grand underfoot.' Out I went into the night. The wind was still moaning in the distance, though never a breath of it came near the house of Shaw's. It had fallen blacker than ever, and I was glad to feel along the wall— till I came the length of the stair-tower door at the far end of the unfinished wing. I had got the key into the keyhole and had just turned it, when all of a sudden, without sound of wind or thunder, the whole sky lighted up with wild fire, and went black again. I had to put my hand over my eyes to get back to the colour of the darkness, and indeed I was already half-blinded when I stepped into the tower. It was so dark inside, it seemed a body could scarce breathe, but I pushed out with foot and hand, and presently struck the wall with the one, and the lowermost round of the stair with the other. The wall, by the touch, was a fine-hewn stone. The steps, too, though somewhat steep and narrow, were of polished mason-work, and regular and solid underfoot. Minding my uncle's word about the banisters, I kept close to the tower-side, and felt my way in the pitch-darkness with a beating heart. The house of Shaw's stood some five full stories high, not counting lofts. Well, as I advanced, it seemed to me the stair grew airier and a thought more lightsome, and I was wondering what might be the cause of this change, when a second blink of the summer lightning came and went. If I did not cry out, it was because fear had me by the throat and if I did not fall, it was more by heaven's mercy than my own strength. It was not only that the flash shone in on every side through breaches in the wall, so that I seemed to be clambering aloft upon an open scaffold, but the same passing brightness showed me the steps were of unequal length, and that one of my feet rested that moment within two inches of the well. This was the grand stair, I thought and with the thought a gust of a kind of angry courage came into my heart. My uncle had sent me here, certainly to run great risks, perhaps to die. I swore I would settle that, perhaps, if I should break my neck for it, got me down upon my hands and knees, and as slowly as a snail, feeling before me every inch, and testing the solidity of every stone, I continued to ascend the stair. 
The darkness, by contrast with the flash, appeared to have redoubled. Nor was that all, for my ears were now troubled and my mind confounded by a great stir of bats in the top part of the tower, and the foul beasts, flying downwards, sometimes beat about my face and body. The tower, I should have said, was square, and in every corner the step was made of a great stone of a different shape to join the flights. Well, I had come close to one of these turns, when, feeling forward as usual, my hand slipped upon an edge and found nothing but emptiness beyond it. The stair had been carried no higher. To set a stranger mounting it in the darkness was to send him straight to his death, and, although, thanks to the lightning and my own precautions, I was safe enough, the mere thought of the peril in which I might have stood, and the dreadful height I might have fallen from, brought out the sweat upon my body, and relaxed my joints. But I knew what I wanted now, and turned and groped my way down again, with a wonderful anger in my heart. About halfway down, the wind sprang up in a clap, and shook the tower, and died again. The rain followed, and before I had reached the ground level it fell in buckets. I put out my head into the storm and looked along towards the kitchen. The door, which I had shut behind me when I left, now stood open and shed a little glimmer of light, and I thought I could see a figure standing in the rain, quite still, like a man hearkening. And then there came a blinding flash which showed me my uncle plainly, just where I had fancied him to stand, and hard upon the heels of it a great tow-row of thunder. Now, whether my uncle thought the crash to be the sound of my fall, or whether he heard in it God's voice denouncing murder, I will leave you to guess. Certain it is, at least, that he was seized on by a kind of panic fear, and that he ran into the house and left the door open behind him. I followed as softly as I could, and coming unheard into the kitchen, stood and watched him. He had found time to open the corner cupboard and bring out a great case-bottle of aqua vitae, and now sat with his back towards me at the table. Ever and again he would be seized with a fit of deadly shuddering and groan aloud, and carrying the bottle to his lips, drink down the raw spirits by the mouthful. I stepped forward, came close behind him where he sat, and suddenly clapping my two hands down upon his shoulders, "'Ah!' cried I. My uncle gave a kind of broken cry like a sheep's bleat, flung up his arms, and tumbled to the floor like a dead man. I was somewhat shocked at this, but I had myself to look to first of all, and I did not hesitate to let him lie, as he had fallen. The keys were hanging in the cupboard, and it was my design to furnish myself with arms before my uncle should come again to his senses, and the power of devising evil. In the cupboard were a few bottles, some apparently of medicine, a great many bills and other papers, which I should willingly enough have rummaged, had I had the time, and a few necessaries that were nothing to my purpose. Thence I turned to the chests. The first was full of meal, the second of money-bags and papers tied into sheaves, in the third, with many other things, and these for the most part clothes. I found a rusty, ugly-looking highland dirk without the scabbard. This, then, I concealed inside my waistcoat, and turned to my uncle. He lay as he had fallen, all huddled, with one knee up and one arm sprawling abroad. His face had a strange colour of blue, and he seemed to have ceased breathing. Fear came on me that he was dead, 
Then I got water and dashed it in his face, and with that he seemed to come a little to himself, working his mouth and fluttering his eyelids. At last he looked up and saw me, and there came into his eyes a terror that was not of this world. "'Come, come,' said I. "'Sit up.' "'Are ye alive?' he sobbed. "'Oh, man, are ye alive?' "'That am I,' said I. "'Small thanks to you.' He had begun to seek for his breath with deep sighs. "'The blue file,' said he, "'in the Almry, the blue vial.' His breath came slower still. I ran to the cupboard, and sure enough found there a blue vial of medicine, with the dose written on it on a paper, and this I administered to him with what speed I might. "'It's the trouble,' said he, reviving a little. "'I have a trouble, Davy. It's the heart.' I set him on a chair and looked at him. It is true I felt some pity for a man that looked so sick, but I was full besides of righteous anger and I numbered over before him the points on which I wanted explanation, why he lied to me at every word, why he feared that I should leave him, why he disliked it to be hinted that he and my father were twins. "'Is that because it is true?' I asked, why he had given me money to which I was convinced I had no claim, and last of all, why he had tried to kill me. He heard me all through in silence, and then, in a broken voice, begged me to let him go to bed. "'I'll tell you the morn,' he said, "'as sure as death I will.' And so weak was he that I could do nothing but consent. I locked him into his room, however, and pocketed the key, and then returning to the kitchen made up such a blaze as had not shone there for many a long year, and wrapping myself in my plaid, lay down upon the chests, and fell asleep." End of chapter. Chapter Five of Kidnapped. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Kidnapped by Robert Louis Stevenson Chapter Five I Go to the Queen's Ferry Much rain fell in the night, and the next morning there blew a bitter wintry wind out of the northwest, driving scattered clouds. For all that, and before the sun began to peep or the last of the stars had vanished, I made my way to the side of the burn, and had a plunge in a deep whirling pool all aglow from my bath, I sat down once more beside the fire, which I replenished, and began gravely to consider my position. There was now no doubt about my uncle's enmity, there was no doubt I carried my life in my hand, and he would leave no stone unturned that he might compass my destruction. But I was young and spirited, and like most lads that had been country-bred, I had a great opinion of my shrewdness. I had come to his door no better than a beggar, and little more than a child. He had met me with treachery and violence. It would be a fine consummation to take the upper hand and drive him like a herd of sheep. I sat there nursing my knee and smiling at the fire, and I saw myself in fancy smell out his secrets one after another, 
and grow to be that man's king and ruler. The warlock of Essendeen, they say, had made a mirror in which men could read the future. It must have been of other stuff than burning coal, for in all the shapes and pictures that I sat and gazed at, there was never a ship, never a seaman with a hairy cap, never a big bludgeon for my silly head, or the least sign of all those tribulations that were ripe to fall on me. Presently, all swollen with conceit, I went upstairs and gave my prisoner his liberty. He gave me good morning civilly, and I gave the same to him, smiling down upon him from the heights of my sufficiency. Soon we were set to breakfast, as it might have been the day before. "'Well, sir,' said I, with a jeering tone, "'have you nothing more to say to me?' And then, as he made no articulate reply, "'It will be time, I think, to understand each other,' I continued. "'You took me for a country Johnny Raw, with no more mother wit or courage than a porridge stick. I took you for a good man, or no worse than others at the least.' It seems we were both wrong. What cause have you to fear me, to cheat me, and to attempt my life?" He murmured something about a jest, and that he liked a bit of fun, and then, seeing me smile, changed his tone, and assured me he would make all clear as soon as we had breakfasted. I saw by his face that he had no lie ready for me, though he was hard at work preparing one, and I think I was about to tell him so when we were interrupted by knocking at the door. Bidding my uncle sit where he was, I went to open it, and found on the doorstep a half-grown boy in sea-clothes. He had no sooner seen me than he began to dance some steps of the sea-hornpipe, which I had never before heard of far less seen, snapping his fingers in the air and footing it right cleverly. For all that he was blue with the cold, and there was something in his face a look between tears and laughter, that was highly pathetic and consisted ill with this gaiety of manner. "'What cheer, mate?' says he, with a cracked voice. I asked him soberly to name his pleasure. "'Oh, pleasure!' says he, and then began to sing, "'For it's my delight of a shiny night in the season of the year.' "'Well,' says I, if you have no business at all, I will even be so unmannerly as to shut you out. "'Stay, brother!' he cried. "'Have you no fun about you, or do you want to get me thrashed? I've brought a letter from old Heziosi to Mr. Bellflower.' He showed me a letter as he spoke. "'And I say, mate,' he added, "'I'm mortal hungry.' "'Well,' said I, "'come into the house, and you shall have a bite, if I go empty for it. With that I brought him in, and set him down to my own place, where he fell too greedily on the remains of breakfast, winking to me between whiles, and making many faces, which I think the poor soul considered manly. Meanwhile my uncle had read the letter and sat thinking. Then, suddenly, he got to his feet with a great air of liveliness, and pulled me apart into the farthest corner of the room. "'Read that,' said he, and put the letter in my hand. Here it is, lying before me as I write. The Hawes Inn at the Queen's Ferry. Sir, I lie here with my hawser up and down, and send my cabin boy to inform. If you have any further commands for overseas, today will be the last occasion, as the wind will serve us well out of the Firth. 
I will not seek to deny that I have had crosses with your doer, Mr. Rankeiller, of which, if not speedily read up, you may look to see some losses follow. I have drawn a bill upon you, as per margin, and am, sir, your most obedient humble servant, Elias Hoseason, agent. "'You see, Davy,' resumed my uncle, as soon as he saw that I had done, "'I have a venture with this man Hoseason, the captain of a trading brig, the Covenant, of Dysart. Now, if you and me was to walk over with yon lad, I could see the captain of the Hawes, and maybe on board the Covenant if there were papers to be signed, and so far from a loss of time, we can jog on to the lawyer, Mr. Rankeiller's. After that's come and gone, ye would be swire to believe me upon my naked word. But you believe Rankeiller. He's factor to half the gentry in these parts, an old man, forby, highly respectic, and he kenned your father. I stood a while in thought. I was going to some place of shipping which was doubtless populous, and where my uncle durst attempt no violence, and indeed even the society of the cabin-boy so far protected me. Once there, I believed I could force on the visit to the lawyer, even if my uncle were now insincere in proposing it, and perhaps in the bottom of my heart I wished a nearer view of the sea and ships. You are to remember I had lived all my life in the inland hills, and just two days before had my first sight of the firth lying like a blue floor, and the sailed ships moving on the face of it, no bigger than toys. One thing with another I made up my mind. Very well, says I, let us go to the ferry. My uncle got into his hat and coat, and buckled an old rusty cutlass on, and then we trod the fire out, locked the door, and set forth upon our walk. The wind, being in that cold quarter of the northwest, blew nearly in our faces as we went. It was the month of June, the grass was all white with daisies, and the trees with blossoms, but to judge by our blue nails and aching wrists, the time might have been winter and the whiteness of December frost. Uncle Ebenezer trudged in the ditch, jogging from side to side like an old ploughman coming home from work. He never said a word the whole way, and I was thrown for talk on the cabin-boy. He told me his name was Ransom, and that he had followed the sea since he was nine, but could not say how old he was, as he had lost his reckoning. He showed me tattoo-marks, bearing his breast in the teeth of the wind, and in spite of my remonstrances, for I thought it was enough to kill him. He swore horribly whenever he remembered, but more like a silly schoolboy than a man, and boasted of many wild and bad things that he had done, stealthy thefts, false accusations, ay, and even murder, but all with such a dearth of likelihood in the details, and such a weak and crazy swagger in the delivery, as disposed me rather to pity than to believe him. I asked him of the brig which he declared was the finest ship that sailed, and of Captain Hoseason, in whose praises he was equally loud. Heziosi, for so he still named the skipper, was a man, by his account, that minded for nothing either in heaven or earth, one that, as people said, would crack on all sail into the day of judgment, rough, fierce, unscrupulous, and brutal, and all this my poor cabin-boy had taught himself to admire as something seamanlike and manly. He would only admit one flaw in his idol. "'He ain't no seaman,' 
he admitted. "'That's Mr. Shuan that navigates the bridge. He's the finest seaman in the trade, only for drink. And I tell you I believe it. Why, look here!' And turning down his stocking he showed me a great raw red wound that made my blood run cold. "'He done that. Mr. Shuan did that,' he said with an air of pride. "'What?' I cried. "'Do you take such savage usage at his hands? Why, you're no slave to be so handled?' "'No,' said the poor moon-calf, changing his tune at once. "'And so he'll find, see here.' And he showed me a great case-knife, which he told me was stolen. "'Oh,' says he, "'let him see me try. I dare him to. I'll do for him. Oh, he ain't the first and he confirmed it with a poor, silly, ugly oath. I have never felt such pity for any one in this wide world as I felt for that half-witted creature, and it began to come over me that the Brig Covenant, for all her pious name, was little better than a hell upon the seas. "'Have you no friends?' said I. He said he had a father in some English seaport, I forget which. "'He was a fine man, too,' he said but he's dead. "'In heaven's name!' cried I. "'Can you find no reputable life on shore?' "'Oh, no,' says he, winking and looking very sly. "'They would put me to a trade. I know a trick worth two of that, I do.' I asked him what trade could be so dreadful as the one he followed, where he ran the continual peril of his life, not alone from wind and sea, but by the horrid cruelty of those who were his masters. He said it was very true, and then began to praise the life, and tell what a pleasure it was to get on shore with money in his pocket, and spend it like a man, and buy apples, and swagger, and surprise what he called stick-in-the-mud boys. "'And then it's not all as bad as that,' says he. "'There's worse off than me. There's the twenty-pounders. Oh, laws, you should see them taking on.' Why, I've seen a man as old as you, I dare say. To him I seemed old. Ah, and he had a beard, too. Well, and as soon as we cleared out of the river, and he had the drug out of his head, my, how he cried and carried on! I made a fine fool of him, I tell you. But then there's little uns, too. Oh, little by me. I tell you, I keep them in order. When we carry little uns, I've a rope's end of my own to wallop em and so he ran on, until it came in on me what he meant by twenty-pounders were those unhappy criminals who were sent overseas to slavery in North America, or the still more unhappy innocents who were kidnapped or trepanned, as the word went, for private interest or vengeance. Just then we came to the top of the hill and looked down on the ferry and the hope. The Firth of Forth, as is very well known, narrows at this point to the width of a good-sized river, which makes a convenient ferry going north, and turns the upper reach into a landlocked haven for all manner of ships. Right in the midst of the narrows lies an islet with some ruins. On the south shore they have built a pier for the service of the ferry, and at the end of the pier, on the other side of the road, and backed against a pretty garden of holly-trees and hawthorns, I could see the building which they called the Hawes Inn. The town of Queen's Ferry lies further west, and the neighbourhood of the inn looked pretty lonely at that time of day, for the boat had just gone north with passengers. A skiff, however, 
lay beside the pier with some seamen sleeping on the thwarts. This, as Ransom told me, was the brig's boat waiting for the captain, and about half a mile off, and all alone in the anchorage, he showed me the Covenant herself. There was a sea-going bustle on board, yards were swinging into place, and as the wind blew from that quarter I could hear the song of the sailors as they pulled upon the ropes. After all I had listened to upon the way, I looked at that ship with an extreme abhorrence, and from the bottom of my heart I pitied all poor souls that were condemned to sail in her. We had all three pulled up on the brow of the hill, and now I marched across the road and addressed my uncle. "'I think it right to tell you, sir,' says I, "'there's nothing that will bring me on board that covenant.' He seemed awakened from a dream. "'Eh?' he said. "'What's that?' I told him over again. "'Well, well,' he said, "'we'll have to please ye, I suppose. But what are we standing here for? It's perishing cold, and if I'm no mistaken they're busking the covenant for sea.'" End of chapter Chapter 6 of Kidnapped this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith, of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Kidnapped by Robert Louis Stevenson Chapter 6 What Befell at the Queen's Ferry As soon as we came to the inn, Ransom led us up the stair to a small room, with a bed in it, and heated like an oven by a great fire of coal. At a table hard by the chimney, a tall, dark, sober-looking man sat writing. In spite of the heat of the room, he wore a thick sea-jacket, buttoned to the neck, and a tall, hairy cap drawn down over his ears. Yet I never saw any man, not even a judge upon the bench, look cooler or more studious and self-possessed than this ship-captain. He got to his feet at once, and coming forward offered his large hand to Ebenezer. "'I am proud to see you, Mr. Balfour,' said he, in a fine deep voice, "'and glad that you are here in time. The wind's fair, and the tide upon the turn. We'll see the old coal-bucket burning on the Isle of May before to-night.' "'Captain Ho-Season,' returned my uncle, you keep your room, Uncle Hot. It's a habit I have, Mr. Balfour, said the skipper. I'm a cold-rife man by my nature. I have a cold blood, sir. There's neither fur nor flannel, no, sir, nor hot rum will warm up what they call the temperature. Sir, it's the same with most men that have been carbonadoed, as they call it, in the tropic seas. Well, well, Captain, replied my uncle. We must all be the way we're made." But it chanced that this fancy of the captain's had a great share in my misfortunes, for though I had promised myself not to let my kinsman out of sight, I was both so impatient for a nearer look of the sea, and so sickened by the closeness of the room, that when he told me to run downstairs and play myself a while, I was fool enough to take him at his word. Away I went, therefore, leaving the two men sitting down to a bottle and a great mass of papers, and crossing the road in front of the inn, walked down upon the beach. With the wind in that quarter, only little wavelets 
not much bigger than I had seen upon a lake, beat upon the shore. But the weeds were new to me, some green, some brown and long, and some with little bladders that crackled between my fingers. Even so far up the firth the smell of the sea-water was exceedingly salt and stirring. The covenant, besides, was beginning to shake out her sails, which hung upon the yards in clusters, and the spirit of all that I beheld put me in thoughts of far voyages and foreign places. I looked, too, at the seamen with the skiff, big brown fellows, some in shirts, some with jackets, some with coloured handkerchiefs about their throats, one with a brace of pistols stuck into his pockets, two or three with knotty bludgeons, and all with their case-knives. I passed the time of day with one that looked less desperate than his fellows, and asked him of the sailing of the brig. He said they would get under way as soon as the ebb set, and expressed his gladness to be out of a port where there were no taverns and fiddlers, but all with such horrifying oaths that I made haste to get away from him. This threw me back on Ransom, who seemed the least wicked of that gang, and who soon came out of the inn and ran to me, crying for a bowl of punch. I told him I would give him no such thing, for neither he nor I was of an age for such indulgences. "'But a glass of ale you may have, and welcome,' says I. He mopped and mowed at me, and called me names, but he was glad to get the ale for all that, and presently we were set down at a table in the front room of the inn, and both eating and drinking with a good appetite. Here it occurred to me that, as the landlord was a man of that county, I might do well to make a friend of him. I offered him a share, as was much the custom in those days, but he was far too great a man to sit with such poor customers as Ransom and myself, and he was leaving the room when I called him back to ask if he knew Mr. Rankiler. "'Hot I,' says he, "'and a very honest man.' And, oh, by the by, says he, was it you who came in with Ebenezer? And when I told him yes, you be no friend of his, he asked, meaning in the Scottish way that I would be no relative. I told him no, none. I thought not, said he, and yet you have a kind of glyph of Mr. Alexander. I said it seemed that Ebenezer was ill seen in the country. Nay doubt said the landlord. He's a wicked old man, and there's many would like to see him gurnin' in the toe. Janet Clouston and many more that he has harried out a house in ham, and yet he was once a fine young fellow too. But that was before the soft gate abroad about Mr. Alexander. That was like the death of him. And what was it? I asked. Oh, just that he had killed him, said the landlord. Did you never hear that? "'And what would he kill him for?' said I. "'And what for but just to get the place?' said he. "'The place?' said I. "'The Shaws?' "'The other place that I can,' said he. "'Aye, man,' said I. "'Is that so? "'Was my—was Alexander the eldest son?' "'Deed he was,' said the landlord. "'What else would he have killed him for?' and with that he went away, as he had been impatient to do from the beginning. Of course, I had guessed it a long while ago, but it is one thing to guess, another to know, and I sat stunned with my good fortune, and could scarce grow to believe that the same poor lad who had trudged in the dust from Ettrick Forest not two days ago was now one of the rich of the earth, 
and had a house and broad lands, and might mount his horse to-morrow. All these pleasant things, and a thousand others, crowded into my mind, as I sat staring before me out of the inn window, and paying no heed to what I saw, only I remember that my eye lighted on Captain Hoseason down on the pier among his seamen, and speaking with some authority. And presently he came marching back towards the house, with no mark of a sailor's clumsiness, but carrying his fine tall figure with a manly bearing, and still with the same sober, grave expression on his face. I wondered if it was possible that Ransom's stories could be true, and half disbelieved them. They fitted so ill with the man's looks. But indeed he was neither so good as I supposed him, nor quite so bad as Ransom did, for, in fact, he was two men, and left the better one behind as soon as he set foot on board his vessel. The next thing I heard my uncle calling me, and found the pair in the road together. It was the captain who addressed me, and that with an air, very flattering to a young lad, of grave equality. Sir, says he, Mr. Balfour tells me great things of you, and for my own part I like your looks. I wish I was for longer here, that we might make the better friends, but we'll make the most of what we have. You shall come on board my brig for half an hour, till the ebb sets, and drink a bowl with me." Now, I longed to see the inside of a ship more than words can tell, but I was not going to put myself in jeopardy, and I told him my uncle and I had an appointment with a lawyer. "'Aye, aye,' said he. He passed me word of that. But you see, the boat'll set you ashore at the town pier, and that's but a penny stone-cast from Rankiller's house." And here he suddenly leaned down and whispered in my ear, "'Take care of the old Todd. He means mischief. Come aboard till I can get a word with you.' And then, passing his arm through mine, he continued aloud, as he set off towards his boat, "'But come, what can I bring you from the Carolinas? Any friend of Mr. Balfour's can command. A roll of tobacco?' Indian feather-work, a skin of a wild beast, a stone pipe, the mocking-bird that mews for all the world like a cat, the cardinal-bird that is as red as blood, take your pick and say your pleasure." By this time we were at the boat-side, and he was handing me in. I did not dream of hanging back. I thought, the poor fool, that I had found a good friend and helper, and I was rejoiced to see the ship. As soon as we were all set in our places, the boat was thrust off from the pier, and began to move over the waters, and what with my pleasure in this new movement, and my surprise at our low position, and the appearance of the shores, and the growing bigness of the brig as we drew near to it, I could hardly understand what the captain said, and must have answered him at random. As soon as we were alongside, where I sat fairly gaping at the ship's height, the strong humming of the tide against its sides, and the pleasant cries of the seamen at their work. Hoseason, declaring that he and I must be the first aboard, ordered a tackle to be sent down from the mainyard. In this I was whipped into the air and set down again on the deck, where the captain stood ready waiting for me, and instantly slipped back his arm under mine. There I stood some while, a little dizzy with the unsteadiness of all around me, perhaps a little afraid and yet vastly pleased with these strange sights, the captain meanwhile pointing out the strangest, and telling me their names and uses. "'But where is my uncle?' said I, suddenly. 
Hi, said Hoseason, with a sudden grimness, that's the point. I felt I was lost. With all my strength I plucked myself clear of him and ran to the bulwarks. Sure enough there was the boat pulling for the town, with my uncle sitting in the stern. I gave a piercing cry, Help! Help! Murder! so that both sides of the anchorage rang with it, and my uncle turned round where he was sitting, and showed me a face full of cruelty and terror. It was the last I saw. Already strong hands had been plucking me back from the ship's side, and now a thunderbolt seemed to strike me. I saw a great flash of fire, and fell senseless. End of chapter Chapter Seven of Kidnapped. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Kidnapped by Robert Louis Stevenson. Chapter Seven. I go to see in the brig Covenant of Dysart. I came to myself in darkness, in great pain, bound hand and foot, and deafened by many unfamiliar noises. There sounded in my ears a roaring of water, as of a huge mill-dam, the thrashing of heavy sprays, the thundering of the sails, and the shrill cries of seamen. The whole world now heaved giddily up, and now rushed giddily downward, and so sick and hurt was I in body, and my mind so much confounded, that it took me a long while chasing my thoughts up and down, and ever stunned again by a fresh stab of pain, to realize that I must be lying somewhere bound in the belly of that unlucky ship, and that the wind must have strengthened to a gale. With a clear perception of my plight there fell upon me a blackness of despair, a horror of remorse at my own folly, and a passion of anger at my uncle, that once more bereft me of my senses. When I returned again to life, the same uproar, the same confused and violent movements, shook and deafened me, and presently, to my other pains and distresses, there was added the sickness of an unused landsman on the sea. In that time of my adventurous youth I suffered many hardships, but none that was so crushing to my mind and body, or lit by so few hopes, as these first hours aboard the brig. I heard a gunfire and supposed the storm had proved too strong for us, and we were firing signals of distress. The thought of deliverance, even by death in the deep sea, was welcome to me. Yet it was no such matter, but, as I was afterwards told, a common habit of the captain's, which I here set down to show that even the worst man may have his kindlier side. We were then passing, it appeared, within some miles of Dysart, where the brig was built, and where old Mrs. Hoseason, the captain's mother, had come some years before to live, and whether outward or inward bound, the Covenant was never suffered to go by that place by day without a gun fired and colours shown. I had no measure of time. Day and night were alike in that ill-smelling cavern of the ship's bowels, where I lay, and the misery of my situation drew out the hours to double. How long, therefore, I lay waiting to hear the ship split upon some rock, 
or to feel her reel head foremost into the depths of the sea, I have not the means of computation. But sleep at length stole from me this consciousness of sorrow. I was awakened by the light of a hand-lantern shining in my face. A small man of about thirty, with green eyes and a tangle of fair hair, stood looking down at me. "'Well,' said he, "'how goes it?' I answered by a sob, and my visitor then felt my pulse and temples, and set himself to wash and dress the wound upon my scalp. "'Aye,' said he, "'a sore dunt. What, man, cheer up! The world's no done. You've made a bad start of it, but you'll make a better. Have you had any meat?' I said I could not look at it, and thereupon he gave me some brandy and water in a tin pannikin, and left me once more to myself. The next time he came to see me I was lying betwixt sleep and waking, my eyes wide open in the darkness, the sickness quite departed, but succeeded by a horrid giddiness and swimming that were almost worse to bear. I ached besides in every limb, and the cords that bound me seemed to be of fire. The smell of the hole in which I lay seemed to have become a part of me, and during the long interval since his last visit I had suffered tortures of fear, now from the scurrying of the ship's rats that sometimes pattered on my very face, and now from the dismal imaginings that haunt the bed of fever. The glimmer of the lantern, as a trap opened, shone in like the heaven's sunlight, and though it only showed me the strong dark beams of the ship that was my prison, I could have cried aloud for gladness. The man with the green eyes was the first to descend the ladder, and I noticed that he came somewhat unsteadily. He was followed by the captain. Neither said a word, but the first set to and examined me, and dressed my wound as before, while Hoseason looked me in my face with an odd black look. "'Now, sir, you see for yourself,' said the first. A high fever, no appetite, no light, no meat, you see for yourself what that means. I am no conjurer, Mr. Riach, said the captain. Give me leave, sir, said Riach. You've a good head upon your shoulders, and a good Scotch tongue to ask with, but I will leave you no manner of excuse. I want that boy taken out of this hole, and put in the forecastle. "'What you may want, sir, is a matter of concern to nobody but yourself,' returned the captain. "'But I can tell you that which is to be. Here he is, here he shall bide.' "'Admitting that you have been paid in proportion,' said the other, "'I will crave leave humbly to say that I have not. Paid I am, and none too much, to be the second officer of this old tub, and you can very well if I do my best to earn it.' but I was paid for nothing more. "'If ye could hold back your hand from the tin-pan, Mr. Riach, I would have no complaint to make of you,' returned the skipper. "'And instead of asking riddles, I make bold to say that you would hold your breath to cool your porridge. We'll be required on deck,' he added in a sharper note, and set one foot upon the ladder. But Mr. Riach caught him by the sleeve. "'Admitting that you've been paid to do a murder,' he began. Hoseason turned upon him with a flash. "'What's that?' he cried. "'What kind of talk is that?' "'It seems it is the talk that you can understand,' said Mr. Riach, looking him steadily in the face. "'Mr. Riach, I have sailed with ye three cruises,' replied the captain. "'In all that time, sir, 
"'Ye should have learned to know me. I'm a stiff man, and a dour man, but for what ye say the now, fie, fie, it comes from a bad heart and a black conscience. If ye say the lad will die—' "'Aye, he will,' said Mr. Riach. "'Well, sir, is that not enough?' said Hoseason. "'Flit him where ye please.' Thereupon the captain ascended the ladder, and I, who had lain silent throughout this strange conversation, beheld Mr. Riach turn after bow as low as to his knees in what was plainly a spirit of derision. Even in my then state of sickness I perceived two things, that the mate was touched with liquor, as the captain hinted, and that, drunk or sober, he was like to prove a valuable friend. Five minutes afterwards my bonds were cut, I was hoisted on a man's back, carried up to the forecastle, and laid in a bunk on some sea-blankets, where the first thing that I did was to lose my senses. It was a blessed thing, indeed, to open my eyes again upon the daylight, and to find myself in the society of men. The forecastle was a roomy place enough, set all about with berths, in which the men of the watch below were seated smoking, or lying down asleep. The day being calm and the wind fair, the scuttle was open, and not only the good daylight, but from time to time, as the ship rolled, a dusty beam of sunlight shone in, and dazzled and delighted me. I had no sooner moved, moreover, than one of the men brought me a drink of something healing, which Mr. Riach had prepared, and bade me lie still, and I should soon be well again. There were no bones broken, he explained. The clower on the head were nothing. Man, said he, it was me that gave it you. Here I lay for the space of many days a close prisoner, and not only got my health again, but came to know my companions. They were a rough lot, indeed, as sailors mostly are, being men rooted out of all the kindly parts of life, and condemned to toss together on the rough seas with masters no less cruel. There were some among them that had sailed with the pirates, and seen things it would be a shame even to speak of. Some were men that had run from the king's ships, and went with a halter round their necks, of which they made no secret, and all, as the saying goes, were at a word and a blow with their best friends. Yet I had not been many days shut up with them before I began to be ashamed of my first judgment, when I had drawn away from them at the ferry pier as though they had been unclean beasts. No class of man is altogether bad, but each has its own faults and virtues, and these shipmates of mine were no exception to the rule. Rough they were, sure enough, and bad, I suppose, but they had many virtues. They were kind when it occurred to them, simple even beyond the simplicity of a country lad like me, and had some glimmerings of honesty. There was one man, of maybe forty, that would sit on my berth-side for hours and tell me of his wife and child. He was a fisher that had lost his boat, and thus been driven to the deep-sea voyaging. Well, it is years ago now, but I have never forgotten him. His wife, who was young by him, as he often told me, waited in vain to see her man return. He would never again make the fire for her in the morning, nor yet keep the barren when she was sick. Indeed, many of these poor fellows, as the event proved, were upon their last cruise. The deep seas and cannibal fish received them, and it is a thankless business to speak ill of the dead. Among other good deeds that they did, they returned my money, which had been shared among them, 
and though it was about a third short I was very glad to get it, and hoped great good from it in the land I was going to. The ship was bound for the Carolinas, and you must not suppose that I was going to that place merely as an exile. The trade was even then much depressed, since that, and with the rebellion of the colonies and the formation of the United States, it has, of course, come to an end. But in those days of my youth, white men were still sold into slavery on the plantations, and that was the destiny to which my wicked uncle had condemned me. The cabin-boy Ransom, from whom I had first heard of these atrocities, came in at times from the roundhouse, where he berthed and served, now nursing a bruised limb in silent agony, now raving against the cruelty of Mr. Shuan. It made my heart bleed, but the men had a great respect for the chief mate, who was, as they said, the only seaman of the whole jing-bang, and none such a bad man when he was sober. Indeed, I found there was a strange peculiarity about our two mates, that Mr. Riach was sullen, unkind, and harsh when he was sober, and Mr. Shuan would not hurt a fly except when he was drinking. I asked about the captain, but I was told drink made no difference upon that man of iron. I did my best in the small time allowed me to make something like a man, or rather, I should say something like a boy, of the poor creature Ransom. But his mind was scarce truly human. He could remember nothing of the time before he came to sea, only that his father had made clocks, and had a starling in the parlour, which could whistle the North Country. All else had been blotted out in these years of hardship and cruelties. He had a strange notion of the dry land, picked up from sailors' stories, that it was a place where lads were put to some kind of slavery called a trade, and where apprentices were continually lashed and clapped into foul prisons. In a town he thought every second person a decoy, and every third house a place in which seamen would be drugged and murdered. To be sure I would tell him how kindly I had myself been used upon that dry land he was so much afraid of and how well fed and carefully taught both by my friends and my parents. And if he had been recently hurt, he would weep bitterly and swear to run away. But if he was in his usual crack-brain humour, or, still more, if he had had a glass of spirits in the roundhouse, he would deride the notion. It was Mr. Riach, heaven forgive him, who gave the boy drink, and it was, doubtless, kindly meant, but besides that it was ruin to his health, it was the pitifulest thing in life to see this unhappy, unfriended creature staggering, and dancing, and talking he knew not what. Some of the men laughed, but not all. Others would grow as black as thunder, thinking perhaps of their own childhood or their own children, and bid him stop that nonsense, and think what he was doing. As for me, I felt ashamed to look at him, and the poor child still comes about me in my dreams. All this time, you should know, the Covenant was meeting continual headwinds and tumbling up and down against head seas, so that the scuttle was almost constantly shut, and the forecastle lighted only by a swinging lantern on a beam. There was constant labour for all hands. The sails had to be made and shortened every hour. The strain told on the men's temper. There was a growl of quarrelling all day, long from berth to berth and as I was never allowed to set my foot on deck, you can picture to yourselves how weary of my life I grew to be, and how impatient for a change. 
and a change I was to get, as you shall hear, but I must first tell of a conversation I had with Mr. Riach, which put a little heart in me to bear my troubles. Getting him in a favourable stage of drink, for indeed he never looked near me when he was sober, I pledged him to secrecy, and told him my whole story. He declared it was like a ballad, that he would do his best to help me, that I should have paper, pen, and ink, and write one line to Mr. Campbell and another to Mr. Rankiler, and that if I had told the truth, ten to one, he would be able, with their help, to pull me through and set me in my rights. "'And in the meantime,' says he, "'keep your heart up. You're not the only one, I'll tell you that. There's many a man hoeing tobacco overseas that should be mounting his horse at his own door at home, many and many. And life is all a very orum, at the best. Look at me. I'm a laird's son, and more than half a doctor, and here I am, man-jack to hoe season. I thought it would be civil to ask him for a story. He whistled loud. Never had one, said he. I like fun, that's all. And he skipped out of the forecastle. End of chapter Chapter Eight of Kidnapped. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Kidnapped by Robert Louis Stevenson. Chapter Eight The Roundhouse. One night, about eleven o'clock, a man of Mr. Riach's watch, which was on deck, came below for his jacket, and instantly there began to go a whisper about the forecastle that Shuan had done for him at last. There was no need of a name. We all knew who was meant, but we had scarce time to get the idea rightly in our heads, far less to speak of it, when the scuttle was again flung open, and Captain Hoseason came down the ladder. He looked sharply round the bunks in the tossing light of the lantern, and then, walking straight up to me, he addressed me, to my surprise, in tones of kindness. "'My man,' said he, "'we want you to serve in the roundhouse. You and Ransom are to change berths. Run away aft with you.' Even as he spoke, two seamen appeared in the scuttle, carrying Ransom in their arms, and the ship at that moment, giving a great sheer into the sea, and the lantern swinging, the light fell direct on the boy's face. It was white as wax, and had a look upon it like a dreadful smile. The blood in me ran cold, and I drew in my breath as if I had been struck. "'Run away aft! Run away aft with you!' cried Hoseason. And at that I brushed by the sailors and the boy, who neither spoke nor moved, and ran up the ladder on deck. The brig was shearing swiftly and giddily through a long cresting swell. She was on the starboard tack, and on the left hand, under the arched foot of the foresail, I could see the sunset still quite bright. This, at such an hour of the night, surprised me greatly, but I was too ignorant to draw the true conclusion, that we were going north about round Scotland, and were now on the high sea between the Orkney and Shetland Islands, having avoided the dangerous currents of the Pentland Firth. For my part, who had been so long shut in the dark, and knew nothing of head-winds, I thought we might be half-way or more across the Atlantic. And, indeed, 
Beyond that I wondered a little at the lateness of the sunset light. I gave no heed to it, pushed on across the decks, running between the seas, catching at ropes, and only saved from going overboard by one of the hands on deck, who had always been kind to me. The roundhouse, for which I was bound, and where I was now to sleep and serve, stood some six feet above the decks, and, considering the size of the brig, was of good dimensions. Inside was a fixed table and bench, and two berths, one for the captain, and the other for the two mates, turn and turn about. It was all fitted with lockers from top to bottom, so as to stow away the officers' belongings and a part of the ship's stores. There was a second storeroom underneath, which you entered by a hatchway in the middle of the deck. Indeed, all the best of the meat and drink and the whole of the powder were collected in this place, and all the firearms, except the two pieces of brass ordnance, were set in a rack in the aftermost wall of the roundhouse. The most of the cutlasses were in another place. A small window with a shutter on each side, and a skylight in the roof, gave it light by day, and after dark there was a lamp always burning. It was burning when I entered, not brightly, but enough to show Mr. Shuan sitting at the table, with the brandy-bottle and a tin pannikin in front of him. He was a tall man, strongly made and very black, and he stared before him on the table like one stupid. He took no notice of my coming in, nor did he move when the captain followed and leant on the berth beside me, looking darkly at the mate. I stood in great fear of Hoseason, and had my reasons for it, but something told me I need not be afraid of him just then, and I whispered in his ear, "'How is he?' He shook his head like one that does not know and does not wish to think, and his face was very stern. Presently Mr. Riach came in. He gave the captain a glance that meant the boy was dead, as plain as speaking, and took his place like the rest of us, so that we all three stood without a word, staring down at Mr. Shuan, and Mr. Shuan, on his side, sat without a word, looking hard upon the table. All of a sudden he put out his hand to take the bottle, and at that Mr. Riach started forward and caught it away from him, rather by surprise than violence, crying out with an oath that there had been too much of this work altogether, and that a judgment would fall upon the ship. And as he spoke, the weather sliding doors standing open, he tossed the bottle into the sea. Mr. Shuan was on his feet in a trice. He still looked dazed, but he meant murder, aye, and would have done it, for the second time that night, had not the captain stepped in between him and his victim. "'Sit down!' roars the captain. "'You sotten swine! Do you know what you've done? You've murdered the boy!' Mr. Shuan seemed to understand, for he sat down again, and put up his hand to his brow. "'Well,' he said, "'he brought me a dirty pannikin.' At that word the captain and I and Mr. Riach all looked at each other for a second with a kind of frightened look, and then Hoseason walked up to his chief officer, took him by the shoulder, led him across to his bunk and bade him lie down and go to sleep, as you might speak to a bad child. The murderer cried a little, but he took off his sea-boots and obeyed. "'Ah!' cried Mr. Riach, with a dreadful voice. "'You should have interfered long since. It's too late now.' "'Mr. Riach,' said the captain, "'this night's work must never be kent in Dysart. The boy went overboard, sir.' 
That's what the story is, and I would give five pounds out of my pocket it was true. He turned to the table. What made you throw the good bottle away? He added. There was no sense in that, sir. Here, David, draw me another. They're in the bottom locker. And he tossed me a key. You'll need a glass yourself, sir, he added to Riach. Yon was an ugly thing to see. So the pair sat down and hobnobbed, and while they did so, the murderer, who had been lying and whimpering in his berth, raised himself upon his elbow and looked at them and at me. That was the first night of my new duties, and in the course of the next day I had got well into the run of them. I had to serve at the meals, which the captain took at regular hours, sitting down with the officer who was off duty. All the day through I would be running with a dram to one or other of my three masters, and at night I slept on a blanket thrown on the deck-boards at the aftermost end of the roundhouse, and right in the draught of the two doors. It was a hard and a cold bed, nor was I suffered to sleep without interruption, for someone would always be coming in from deck to get a dram, and when a fresh watch was to be set, two and sometimes all three would sit down and brew a bowl together. How they kept their health I know not, any more than how I kept my own. And yet in other ways it was an easy service. There was no cloth delay, the meals were either of oatmeal porridge or salt junk, except twice a week when there was duff, and though I was clumsy enough, and, not being firm on my sea-legs, sometimes fell with what I was bringing them, both Mr. Riach and the captain were singularly patient. I could not but fancy they were making up leeway with their consciences, and that they would scarce have been so good with me if they had not been worse with Ransom. As for Mr. Shuan, the drink or his crime, or the two together, had certainly troubled his mind. I cannot say I ever saw him in his proper wits. He never grew used to my being there, stared at me continually. Sometimes I could have thought with terror, and more than once drew back from my hand when I was serving him. I was pretty sure from the first that he had no clear mind of what he had done, and on my second day in the roundhouse I had the proof of it. We were alone, and he had been staring at me a long time when all at once up he got as pale as death and came up close to me, to my great terror. But I had no cause to be afraid of him. "'You were not here before?' he asked. "'No, sir,' said I. "'There was another boy?' he asked again. And when I had answered him, "'Ah,' says he, "'I thought that,' and went and sat down without another word except to call for brandy." You may think it strange, but for all the horror I had, I was still sorry for him. He was a married man, with a wife in Leith, but whether or no he had a family I have now forgotten. I hope not. Altogether it was no very hard life for the time it lasted, which, as you are to hear, was not long. I was as well fed as the best of them, even their pickles, which were the great dainty, I was allowed my share of and had I liked I might have been drunk from morning to night, like Mr. Shuan. I had company, too, and good company of its sort. Mr. Riach, who had been to the college, spoke to me like a friend when he was not sulking, told me many curious things, and some that were informing, and even the captain, though he kept me at the stick's end the most part of the time, 
would sometimes unbuckle a bit and tell me of the fine countries he had visited. The shadow of poor Ransom, to be sure, lay on all four of us, and on me and Mr. Shuan in particular, most heavily. And then I had another trouble of my own. Here I was, doing dirty work for three men that I looked down upon, and one of whom, at least, should have been hung upon a gallows. That was for the present, and as for the future, I could only see myself slaving alongside of negroes in the tobacco-fields. Mr. Riach, perhaps from caution, would never suffer me to say another word about my story. The captain, whom I tried to approach, rebuffed me like a dog and would not hear a word, and as the days came and went, my heart sank lower and lower, till I was even glad of the work which kept me from thinking. End of chapter Chapter Nine of Kidnapped. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Kidnapped by Robert Louis Stevenson. Chapter Nine The Man with the Belt of Gold. More than a week went by, in which the ill-luck that had hitherto pursued the covenant upon this voyage grew yet more strongly marked. Some days she made a little way, others she was driven actually back. At last we were beaten so far to the south that we tossed and tacked to and fro the whole of the ninth day, within sight of Cape Wrath and the wild rocky coast on either hand of it. There followed on that a council of the officers and some decision which I did not rightly understand, seeing only the result, that we had made a fair wind of a foul one, and were running south. The tenth afternoon there was a falling swell, and a thick, wet, white fog that hid one end of the brig from the other. All afternoon, when I went on deck, I saw men and officers listening hard over the bulwarks. For breakers, they said, and though I did not so much as understand the word, I felt danger in the air, and was excited. Maybe about ten at night I was serving Mr. Riach and the captain at their supper, when the ship struck something with a great sound, and we heard voices singing out. My two masters leaped to their feet. "'She struck!' said Mr. Riach. "'No, sir,' said the captain. "'We've only run a boat down.' And they hurried out. The captain was in the right of it. We had run down a boat in the fog and she had parted in the midst and gone to the bottom with all her crew but one. This man, as I heard afterwards, had been sitting in the stern as a passenger, while the rest were on the benches rowing. At the moment of the blow the stern had been thrown into the air, and the man, having his hands free, and for all he was encumbered with a frieze overcoat that came below his knees, had leaped up and caught hold of the brig's bowsprit. It showed he had luck, and much agility, and unusual strength, that he should have thus saved himself from such a pass. And yet, when the captain brought him into the roundhouse, and I set eyes on him for the first time, he looked as cool as I did. He was smallish in stature, but well set, and as nimble as a goat. His face was of a good open expression, but sunburnt very dark, 
and heavily freckled and pitted with the smallpox. His eyes were unusually light and had a kind of dancing madness in them that was both engaging and alarming, and when he took off his greatcoat he laid a pair of fine silver-mounted pistols on the table, and I saw that he was belted with a great sword. His manners, besides, were elegant, and he pledged the captain handsomely. Altogether I thought of him, at the first sight, that here was a man I would rather call my friend than my enemy. The captain, too, was taking his observations, but rather of the man's clothes than his person. And to be sure, as soon as he had taken off the greatcoat, he showed forth mighty fine for the roundhouse of a merchant brig, having a hat with feathers, a red waistcoat, breeches of black plush, and a blue coat with silver buttons and handsome silver lace, costly clothes, though somewhat spoiled with the fog and being slept in. "'I'm vexed, sir, about the boat,' said the captain. "'There are some pretty men gone to the bottom,' said the stranger, "'that I would rather see on the dry land again than half a score of boats.' "'Friends of yours?' said Hoseason. "'You have none such friends in your country,' was the reply. "'They would have died for me like dogs.' "'Well, sir,' said the captain, still watching him, there are more men in the world than boats to put them in. <laughs> and that's true, too, cried the other. And you seem to be a gentleman of great penetration. I have been in France, sir, says the captain, so that it was plain he meant more by the words than showed upon the face of them. Well, sir, says the other, and so is many a pretty man for the matter of that. No doubt, sir, says the captain, and fine coats. Oho! says the stranger. Is that how the wind sets? And he laid his hand quickly on his pistols. Don't be hasty, said the captain. Don't do a mischief before you see the need of it. You've a French soldier's coat upon your back and a Scotch tongue in your head, to be sure. But so has many an honest fellow these days, and I dare say none the worse of it. So, said the gentleman in the fine coat, are ye of the honest party? Meaning, was he a Jacobite? For each side in these sort of civil broils takes the name of honesty for its own. Why, sir, replied the captain, I am a true blue Protestant, and I thank God for it. It was the first word of any religion I had ever heard from him, but I learned afterwards he was a great churchgoer while on shore. But for all that, says he, I can be sorry to see another man with his back to the wall. "'Can you so, indeed?' asked the Jacobite. "'Well, sir, to be quite plain with you, I am one of those honest gentlemen that were in trouble about the years forty-five and six, and, to be still quite plain with you, if I got into the hands of any of the red-coated gentry it's like it would go hard with me.' Now, sir, I was for France, and there was a French ship cruising here to pick me up, but she gave us the go-by in the fog, as I wish from the heart that ye had done yourself. And the best that I can say is this, if ye can set me ashore where I was going, I have that upon me will reward you highly for your trouble. In France, says the captain, no, sir, that I cannot do, but where you come from we might talk of that. And then, unhappily, 
he observed me standing in my corner and packed me off to the galley to get supper for the gentleman. I lost no time, I promise you, and when I came back into the roundhouse, I found the gentleman had taken a money-belt from about his waist, and poured out a guinea or two upon the table. The captain was looking at the guineas, and then at the belt, and then at the gentleman's face, and I thought he seemed excited. "'Half of it,' he cried, "'and I'm your man.' The other swept back the guineas into the belt, and put it on again under his waistcoat. "'I have told you, sir,' said he, "'that not one doit of it belongs to me. It belongs to my chieftain.' And here he touched his hat. "'And while I would be but a silly messenger to grudge some of it that the rest might come safe, I should show myself a hound indeed if I bought my own carcass any too dear. Thirty guineas on the seaside, or sixty if you set me on the linny lock. Take it, if you will. If not, you can do your worst.' "'Aye,' said Hoseason, "'and if I give you over to the soldiers—' "'You would make a fool's bargain,' said the other. "'My chief, let me tell you, sir, is forfeited, like every honest man in Scotland. His estates is in the hands of the man they call King George, and it is his officers that collects the rents, or try to collect them. But for the honour of Scotland, the poor tenant bodies take a thought upon their chief lying in exile.' and this money is a part of that very rent for which King George is looking. Now, sir, you seem to me to be a man that understands things. Bring this money within the reach of government, and how much of it'll come to you?" "'Little enough, to be sure,' said Hoseason. And then, "'If they knew,' he added dryly, "'but I think, if I was to try, that I could hold my tongue about it.' "'Ah, but I'll begock you there,' cried the gentleman. "'Play me false, and I'll play you cunning. If a hand is laid upon me, they shall ken what money it is.' "'Well,' returned the captain, "'that must be must. Sixty guineas, and done. Here's my hand upon it.' "'And here's mine,' said the other. And thereupon the captain went out, rather hurriedly, I thought, and left me alone in the round-house with the stranger.' At that period, so soon after the forty-five, there were many exiled gentlemen coming back at the peril of their lives, either to see their friends or to collect a little money, and as for the highland chiefs that had been forfeited, it was a common matter of talk how their tenants would stint themselves to send them money, and their clansmen outfaced the soldiery to get it in, and run the gauntlet of our great navy to carry it across. All this I had, of course, heard tell of and now I had a man under my eyes whose life was forfeit on all these counts and upon one more, for he was not only a rebel and a smuggler of rents, but he had taken service with King Louis of France. And as if all this were not enough, he had a belt full of golden guineas round his loins. Whatever my opinions, I could not look on such a man without a lively interest. "'And so you're a Jacobite?' said I, as I set meat before him. "'Aye,' said he, beginning to eat, "'and you, by your long face, should be a Whig?' "'Betwixt and between,' said I, not to annoy him, but for indeed I was as good a Whig as Mr. Campbell could make me. "'And that's nothing,' said he. "'But I'm saying, Mr. Betwixt and between,' he added, "'this bottle of yours is dry, and it's hard if I'm to pay sixty guineas and be grudged a dram upon the back of it.' 
"'I'll go and ask for the key,' said I, and stepped on deck. The fog was as close as ever, but the swell almost down. They had laid the brig too, not knowing precisely where they were, and the wind, what little there was of it, not serving well for their true course. Some of the hands were still hearkening for breakers, but the captain and the two officers were in the waist, with their heads together. It struck me, I don't know why, that they were after no good, and the first word I heard, as I drew softly near, more than confirmed me. It was Mr. Riach crying out, as if upon a sudden thought, "'Couldn't we wile him out of the roundhouse?' "'He's better where he is,' returned Hoseason. "'He hasn't room to use his sword.' "'Well, that's true,' said Riach. "'But he's hard to come at.' "'But,' said Hoseason, "'we can get the man in talk, one upon each side, and pin him by the two arms. Or if that'll not hold, sir, we can make a run by both the doors and get him under hand before he has the time to draw.' At this hearing I was seized with both fear and anger at these treacherous, greedy, bloody men that I sailed with. My first mind was to run away. My second was bolder. "'Captain,' said I, "'the gentleman is seeking a dram, and the bottle's out. Will you give me the key?' They all started and turned about. "'Why, here's our chance to get the firearms!' Riach cried, and then to me, "'Hark ye, David,' he said. Do you ken where the pistols are? Ay, ay, put in Hoseason. David kens. David's a good lad. You see, David, my man, yon wild Highlandman is a danger to the ship, besides being a rank foe to King George, God bless him. I had never been so bedavided since I came on board, but I said yes, as if all I heard were quite natural. The trouble is, resumed the captain, that all our firelocks, great and little, are in the roundhouse under this man's nose, likewise the powder. Now, if I, or one of the officers, was to go in and take them, he would fall to thinking. But a lad like you, David, might snap up a horn and a pistol or two without remark. And if you can do it cleverly, I'll bear it in mind when it'll be good for you to have friends, and that's when we come to Carolina. Here Mr. Riach whispered him a little. "'Very right, sir,' said the captain, and then to myself, "'And see here, David, yon man has a belt full of gold, and I give you my word that you shall have your fingers in it.' I told him I would do as he wished, though indeed I had scarce breath to speak with, and upon that he gave me the key of the spirit-locker, and I began to go slowly back to the roundhouse. What was I to do? They were dogs and thieves. They had stolen me from my own country— they had killed poor Ransom, and was I to hold the candle to another murder? But then, upon the other hand, there was the fear of death very plain before me, for what could a boy and a man, if they were as brave as lions, against a whole ship's company? I was still arguing it back and forth, and getting no great clearness, when I came into the roundhouse and saw the Jacobite eating his supper under the lamp and at that my mind was made up all in a moment. I have no credit by it. It was by no choice of mine, but as if by compulsion, that I walked right up to the table and put my hand on his shoulder. "'Do you want to be killed?' said I. He sprang to his feet, and looked a question at me as clear as if he had spoken. 
"'Oh!' cried I. "'They're all murderers here. It's a ship full of them. They've murdered a boy already. Now it's you.' "'Aye, aye,' said he. "'But they haven't got me yet.' And then, looking at me curiously, "'Will ye stand with me?' "'That will I,' said I. I am no thief, nor yet murderer. I'll stand by you." "'Why, then,' said he, "'what's your name?' "'David Balfour,' said I, and then, thinking that a man with so fine a coat must like fine people, I added for the first time, "'Of Shaw's.' It never occurred to him to doubt me, for a Highlander is used to see great gentlefolk in great poverty but as he had no estate of his own, my words nettled a very childish vanity he had. "'My name is Stuart,' he said, drawing himself up. "'Alan Breck, they call me. The King's name is good enough for me, though I bear it plain, and have the name of no farm-midden to clap to the hind end of it.' And having administered this rebuke as though it were something of a chief importance, he turned to examine our defences. The roundhouse was built very strong, to support the breaching of the seas. Of its five apertures, only the skylight and the two doors were large enough for the passage of a man. The doors, besides, could be drawn close. They were of stout oak, and ran in grooves, and were fitted with hooks to keep them either shut or open as the need arose. The one that was already shut I secured in this fashion, but when I was proceeding to slide to the other, Alan stopped me. "'David,' said he, "'for I cannot bring to mind the name of your landed estate, and so will make so bold as to call you, David. That door being open is the best part of my defences.' "'It would be yet better shut,' says I. "'Not so, David,' says he. "'You see, I have but one face, but so long as that door is open and my face to it, the best part of my enemies will be in front of me, where I would I wish to find them.' Then he gave me from the rack a cutlass, of which there were a few besides the firearms, choosing it with great care, shaking his head and saying he had never in all his life seen poorer weapons, and next he set me down to the table with a powder-horn, a bag of bullets, and all the pistols, which he bade me charge. "'And that will be better work, let me tell you,' said he, "'for a gentleman of decent birth, than scraping plates and raxing drums to a ween-terry sailor's. Thereupon he stood up in the midst with his face to the door, and drawing his great sword made trial of the room he had to wield it in. "'I must stick to the point,' he said, shaking his head. "'And that's a pity, too. It doesn't set my genius, which is all for the upper guard. And now,' said he, "'do you keep on charging the pistols, and give heed to me?' I told him I would listen closely. My chest was tight, my mouth dry the light dark to my eyes, and the thought of the numbers that were soon to leap in upon us kept my heart in a flutter. And the sea which I heard washing round the brig, and where I thought my dead body would be cast ere morning, ran in my mind strangely. First of all,' said he, "'how many are against us?' I reckoned them up, and such was the hurry of my mind I had to cast the numbers twice. Fifteen, said I. Alan whistled. "'Well,' said he, "'that can't be cured. And now follow me. It is my part to keep this door, where I look for the main battle. 
in that ye have no hand. And mind, and dinna fire to this side unless they get me down, for I would rather have ten foes in front of me than one friend like you cracking pistols at my back. I told him, indeed, I was no great shot. And that's very bravely said, he cried, in a great admiration of my candour. There's many a pretty gentleman that would not dare to say it. But then, sir, said I, there is the door behind you, which they may perhaps break in. Aye, said he, and that is the part of your work. No sooner the pistols charged than you must climb up into yon bed where you handy at the window, and if they lift hand against the door, you're to shoot. But that's not all. Let's make a bit of a soldier of you, David. What else have you to guard? There's the skylight, said I. But indeed, Mr. Stewart, I would need to have eyes upon both sides to keep the two of them, for when my face is at the one my back is to the other. And that's very true, said Alan. But have you no ears to your head? To be sure, cried I. I must hear the bursting of the glass. "'Ye have some rudiments of sense,' said Alan grimly. End of chapter Chapter 10 of Kidnapped This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Kidnapped by Robert Louis Stevenson Chapter 10 The Siege of the Roundhouse But now our time of truce was come to an end. Those on deck had waited for my coming till they grew impatient, and scarce had Alan spoken when the captain showed face in the open door. Stand! cried Alan and pointed his sword at him. The captain stood, indeed, but he neither winced nor drew back a foot. "'A naked sword,' said he. "'This is a strange return for hospitality.' "'Do you see me?' said Alan. "'I am come of kings. I bear a king's name. My badge is the oak. Do you see my sword? It has slashed the heads off more wigamores than you have toes upon your feet. Call up your vermin to your back, sir and fall on. The sooner the clash begins, the sooner you'll taste this steel through your vitals." The captain said nothing to Alan, but he looked over at me with an ugly look. "'David,' said he, "'I'll mind this,' and the sound of his voice went through me with a jar. Next moment he was gone. "'And now,' said Alan, "'let your hand keep your head, for the grip is coming.' Alan drew a dirk, which he held in his left hand in case they should run in under his sword. I, on my part, clambered up into the berth with an armful of pistols and something of a heavy heart, and set open the window where I was to watch. It was a small part of the deck that I could overlook, but enough for our purpose. The sea had gone down, and the wind was steady and kept the sails quiet, so that there was a great stillness in the ship in which I made sure I heard the sound of muttering voices. A little after, and there came a clash of steel upon the deck, by which I knew they were dealing out the cutlasses, and one had been let fall, and after that, silence again. I do not know if I was what you call afraid, but my heart beat like a bird's, both quick and little, 
and there was a dimness come before my eyes which I continually rubbed away, and which continually returned. As for hope, I had none, but only a darkness of despair and a sort of anger against all the world that made me long to sell my life as dear as I was able. I tried to pray, I remember, but that same hurry of my mind, like a man running, would not suffer me to think upon the words, and my chief wish was to have the thing begin and be done with it. It came all of a sudden when it did, with a rush of feet and a roar, and then a shout from Alan, and a sound of blows and someone crying out as if hurt. I looked back over my shoulder and saw Mr. Shuan in the doorway crossing blades with Alan. "'That's him that killed the boy!' I cried. "'Look to your window!' said Alan and as I turned back to my place I saw him pass his sword through the mate's body. It was none too soon for me to look to my own part, for my head was scarce back at the window before five men, carrying a spare yard for a battering-ram, ran past me and took post to drive the door in. I had never fired with a pistol in my life, and not often with a gun, far less against a fellow-creature, but it was now or never, and just as they swang the yard I cried out, take that and shot into their midst i must have hit one of them for he sang out and gave back a step and the rest stopped as if a little disconcerted before they had time to recover i sent another ball over their heads and at my third shot which went as wide as the second the whole party threw down the yard and ran for it then i looked round again into the deck-house the whole place was full of the smoke of my own firing just as my ears seemed to be burst with the noise of the shots but there was Alan, standing as before, only now his sword was running blood to the hilt, and himself so swelled with triumph, and fallen into so fine an attitude, that he looked to be invincible. Right before him on the floor was Mr. Shuan, on his hands and knees. The blood was pouring from his mouth, and he was sinking slowly lower, with a terrible white face. And just as I looked, some of those from behind caught hold of him by the heels and dragged him bodily out of the roundhouse. I believe he died as they were doing it. "'There's one of your wigs for you!' cried Alan, and then, turning to me, he asked if I had done much execution. I told him I had winged one, and thought it was the captain. "'And I have settled too, says he. "'No, there's not enough blood let. They'll be back again. To your watch, David. This was but a dram before meat.' I settled back to my place, recharging the three pistols I had fired, and keeping watch with both eye and ear. Our enemies were disputing not far off upon the deck, and that so loudly that I could hear a word or two above the washing of the seas. "'It was Shuan buckled it,' I heard one say. And another one answered him with a, "'Whisht, man, he's paid the piper!' And after that... The voices fell again into the same muttering as before. Only now one person spoke most of the time, as though laying down a plan, and first one and then another answered him briefly, like men taking orders. By this I made sure they were coming on again, and told Alan. "'It's what we have to pray for,' said he. "'Unless we can give them a good distaste of us, and done with it, there'll be no sleep for either you or me. But this time, mind, they'll be in earnest.' By this my pistols were ready, and there was nothing to do but listen and wait. While the brush lasted I had not the time to think if I was frighted, but now, when all was still again, 
my mind ran upon nothing else. The thought of the sharp swords and the cold steel was strong in me, and presently, when I began to hear stealthy steps and a brushing of men's clothes against the roundhouse wall, and knew they were taking their places in the dark, I could have found it in my mind to cry out aloud. All this was upon Alan's side, and I had begun to think my share of the fight was at an end, when I heard someone drop softly on the roof above me. Then there came a single call on the sea-pipe, and that was the signal. A knot of them made one rush of it, cutlass in hand, against the door, and at the same moment the glass of the skylight was dashed in a thousand pieces, and a man leaped through and landed on the floor. Before he got his feet I had clapped a pistol to his back, and I might have shot him, too, only at the touch of him, and him alive, my whole flesh misgave me, and I could no more pull the trigger than I could have flown. He had dropped his cutlass as he jumped, and when he felt the pistol, whipped straight around and laid hold of me, roaring out an oath, and at that either my courage came again, or I grew so much afraid as came to the same thing, for I gave a shriek and shot him in the midst of the body. He gave the most horrible ugly groan and fell to the floor. The foot of a second fellow, whose legs were dangling through the skylight, struck me at the same time upon the head, and at that I snatched another pistol and shot this one through the thigh so that he slipped through and tumbled in a lump on his companion's body. There was no talk of missing, any more than there was time to aim. I clapped the muzzle to the very place, and fired. I might have stood and stared at them for long, but I heard Alan shout as if for help, and that brought me to my senses. He had kept the door so long, but one of the seamen, while he was engaged with others, had run in under his guard and caught him about the body. Alan was dirking him with his left hand, but the fellow clung like a leech. Another had broken in, and had his cutlass raised. The door was thronged with their faces. I thought we were lost, and catching up my cutlass fell on them in flank. But I had not time to be of help. The wrestler dropped at last, and Alan, leaping back to get his distance, ran upon the others like a bull, roaring as he went. They broke before him like water turning and running and falling one against another in their haste. The sword in his hands flashed like quicksilver into the huddle of our fleeing enemies, and at every flash there came the scream of a man hurt. I was still thinking we were lost when, lo, they were all gone, and Alan was driving them along the deck as a sheep-dog chases sheep. Yet he was no sooner out than he was back again, being as cautious as he was brave and meanwhile the seamen continued running and crying out as if he was still behind them, and we heard them tumble one upon another into the forecastle, and clap to the hatch upon the top. The roundhouse was like a shambles. Three were dead inside, another lay in his death agony across the threshold, and there were Alan and I, victorious and unhurt. He came up to me with open arms. "'Come to my arms!' he cried, and embraced and kissed me hard upon both cheeks. "'David!' said he. "'I love you like a brother. And, oh, man!' he cried in a kind of ecstasy. "'Am I no a bonny fighter?' Thereupon he turned to the four enemies, passed his sword clean through each of them, and tumbled them out of doors one after the other. As he did so, he kept humming and singing and whistling to himself, like a man trying to recall an air. Only what he was trying was to make one. All the while the flush was in his face, 
and his eyes were as bright as a five-year-old child's with a new toy. And presently he sat down upon the table, sword in hand, the air that he was making all the time began to run a little clearer, and then clearer still, and then out he burst with a great voice into a Gaelic song. I have translated it here, not in verse, of which I have no skill, but at least in the King's English. He sang it often afterwards, and the thing became popular, so that I have heard it, and had explained to me, many's the time. This is the song of the sword of Alan. The smith made it, the fire set it, now it shines in the hand of Alan Breck. Their eyes were many and bright, swift were they to behold, many the hands they guided, the sword was alone. The Dundeer troop over the hill, they are many, the hill is one, the Dundeer vanish, the hill remains. Come to me from the hills of heather, come from the isles of the sea, O far-beholding eagles, here is your meat. Now this song which he made, both words and music, in the hour of our victory, is something less than just to me, who stood beside him in the tussle. Mr. Shuon and five more were either killed outright or thoroughly disabled, but of these two fell by my hand, the two that came by the skylight. Four more were hurt, and of that number one, and he not the least important, got his hurt from me. So that altogether I did my fair share both of the killing and the wounding, and might have claimed a place in Alan's verses. But poets have to think upon their rhymes, and in good prose talk Alan always did me more than justice. In the meanwhile I was innocent of any wrong being done me, for not only I knew no word of the Gaelic, but what with the long suspense of the waiting, and the scurry and strain of our two spurts of fighting, and more than all, the horror I had of some of my own share in it, the thing was no sooner over than I was glad to stagger to a seat. There was that tightness on my chest that I could hardly breathe. The thought of the two men I had shot sat upon me like a nightmare. And all upon a sudden, and before I had a guess of what was coming, I began to sob and cry like any child. Alan clapped my shoulder, and said I was a brave lad, and wanted nothing but a sleep. "'I'll take the first watch.' said he. You've done well by me, David, first and last, and I wouldn't lose you for all Appen. No, nor for Bradlebane. So I made up my bed on the floor, and he took the first spell, pistol in hand and sword on knee, three hours by the captain's watch upon the wall. Then he roused me up, and I took my turn of three hours, before the end of which it was broad day, and a very quiet morning with a smooth rolling sea that tossed the ship and made the blood run to and fro on the roundhouse floor, and a heavy rain that drummed upon the roof. All my watch there was nothing stirring, and by the banging of the helm I knew they had even no one at the tiller. Indeed, as I learned afterwards, there were so many of them hurt or dead, and the rest in so ill a temper, that Mr. Riach and the captain had to take turn and turn like Alan and me or the brig might have gone ashore, and nobody the wiser. It was a mercy the night had fallen so still, for the wind had gone down as soon as the rain began. Even as it was, I judged by the wailing of a great number of gulls that went crying and fishing round the ship, that she must have drifted pretty near the coast, or one of the islands of the Hebrides, 
and at last, looking out of the door of the roundhouse, I saw the great stone hills of sky on the right hand, and, a little more astern, the strange isle of Rum. End of chapter